Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Friday morning, December 1, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Rev will be with us in just a second. I think he is putting out some fires. Yeah, he's putting out some fires, dealing with the spectrum people that are here this morning to make a necessary repair or upgrade. Yeah, that'd be a better way. An upgrade to the equipment that has caused us some uncertainty in our um in our phone um, system and taking calls and whatnot. Uh, Rev found a an issue yesterday. Some piece of equipment was not as upgraded as it needed to be. So we think by I mean the phones work now, right? We have one person on the line, so but we believe be. that during the next hour or so, the piece of older equipment will be replaced by a piece of newer equipment, and the um the problem will take care of it. Well, it won't take care of itself. It will have been repaired, and uh, and hopefully we have way more. Um, a more working phone line back and forth uh, between our listeners. If we got a caller, let's go there. We do. We have Verd Odom. Verd, you are on the air. Uh, maybe we don't. Okay. I, I, we were on, told we had Verd. Yeah, I'm still on. Okay. okay, there you go. We can hear you now, Verd. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I guess last night we saw how how uh, terrible Gavin Newsom would be for the American people if he ever got elected, if he decided to run. But, uh, yeah, I didn't listen to much of it last night, but it was pretty poor. Uh, it's terrible that uh, DeSantis is running for president and he has to go across the aisle and, and debate a Democrat governor to get attention for his campaign. Uh, I don't think either one of them equated themselves very much last night. And, uh, you know, I guess probably the, the best Christmas present that uh, that DeSantos and, and Nikki Haley could do was probably drop out of the race and go into New Year uh, back in President Trump and getting behind the candidate that's going to be the nominee without a doubt. And let's move on and take care of uh, whoever it is that runs for the Democratic side. I don't think it'll be Biden. And I don't really don't think it'll be Newsom now. So uh, anyway, that was uh, my take on things last night. A uh, very, uh, very poor presentation. I think a lot of people said they turned it off after a few minutes because they were so disgusted with the lies from Newsom. And if anybody believes that California is doing good, uh, talk to those hundreds of thousands of people that have moved to Texas and Florida. So uh, anyway, that's my take, Kim. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. You know, I was I was reading something this morning. I actually read a little bit yesterday afternoon. Something unusual is happening with DeSantis and Haley. They're farming out the majority of their campaign to political action committees. Um, I'll give an example, Josh. Um, Nikki says that she has $10 million of media buys in Iowa. The mm-hmm. record shows she has $4.6 million of radio buys or television, media buys, media, radio, television, whatnot, media buys in, uh, in, in uh, Iowa. Where's the other 5.4? I think that's a slip of the tongue. Mm-hmm. I think Nikki basically said that we're working with our political action committee, which is forbidden. You're not to do that. And we're spending about four and a half million. They're going to spend about five and a half million, but you're not to coordinate with the political action committees. There has to be some suggested firewall between one and the other. Now we don't buy that. I mean, we believe and have always felt that there's some coordination between the political action committee and the campaign. But I think Haley and DeSantis are an example of not being able to gain traction and letting the political action committee drive the campaign instead of the campaign being the primary force du jour, so to speak, trying to win um, said election. Uh, you know, I, I held off, and I mean this sincerely. I am a nobody from nowhere, and I held off out of respect to Tim. 
and a, and a friendship that I had with Tim Scott. But I was looking this morning at who the South Carolina director for the Trump campaign is because I'm ready to officially do whatever I can do to help Trump win uh, the primary. And I, there's a couple of others. I talked. I don't think he'd mind me saying this. I talked to a former Lieutenant Governor Andre Bauer about um, you know what needs to happen now to solidify because there were a handful of us. And by that, I mean former politicos, current politicos, people who felt, you know, I, I, I like the America First agenda, but Tim Scott's a South Carolina native and a U.S. senator, and I want to give deference to that. I want to be respectful of that. And, uh, and now that Tim's out, I think there are um, some that are right for the takings. I think there's some opinion leaders, some media figures, some office holders. Uh, I don't put much stock in endorsements. I really don't. Um. But, but I do believe that you will see over the next week or two um, many folks like myself who felt they owed Tim Scott some degree of respect. Now, you can say, well, I mean, that's, that's nothing to do. Well, I mean, that's your call and my call. And I made a decision based on my friendship with Tim. But, uh, but now that Tim's out of the race, I am emphatically in Trump's camp, 100% in Trump's camp. And, um, and I think there will be others. And, and a lot of the reason... Well, I mean, the, the, the obvious reason to me is he's kind of the originator of America first, and he's the original items, the original article. Why go find um, a phony when you can have the real thing? And and I think voting for Trump and supporting Trump only solidifies this America first uh, movement. I, I don't know how you call yourselves emphatically in support of America first without being for Donald Trump. I mean, I understand Ron DeSantis, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but Nikki has clearly charted her course. I mean, Nikki is clearly said there's a there's a place in this race for an establishment Republican who depends on the typical insider networks to raise the money, to create the momentum, to propel someone from, you know, 12, well, 9, 10, or 11% to whatever her ceiling is. But but the, the problem that I see is DeSantis and Haley are not dynamic enough candidates to drive uh, the, the, the entire energy themselves. They have to pick up all of these other ancillary supports. And it looks to me, and this is kind of a turnoff to me personally, it looks to me that the the campaign is secondary to the political action committee. The Koch brothers um, will probably, from here to the finish line, wherever that is, be the primary force in Nikki Haley's campaign. Her campaign will be reactionary to what the Koch brothers, one's dead, but the Koch brother, but that organization. I mean, it's a, um, it's well-funded it's well-oiled. I mean, they have a huge database they'll make available to Nikki Haley and her alone. Um, Ron DeSantis has this Stand Up America or whatever the super PAC is that is kind of um, flying his flag the highest. But I just like the idea of a candidate and a campaign being primary and the political action committee being secondary. But in their two cases, it looks to me like they just couldn't get it done by not being dynamic enough candidates um, you know, great, good enough fundraisers, and now they farmed out some of that to uh, the Koch brothers and uh, Ken Langone and 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 uh, and Rod DeSantis. Is you're beginning to see, uh, and this will happen next week, probably more than this. You're beginning to see an exodus of DeSantis supporters to Haley. I mean, they're establishment Republicans, and they believed six months ago that DeSantis was the best alternative to Trump. Now they've seen probably not going to happen. So the next best thing ends up being the best thing if you believe in an alternative to Trump, and it'll be um, it'll be Nikki Haley. I don't know how the first three states play out, but it looks to me like I mean I looked 
this morning in Iowa today, the RCP average, Trump at 47, DeSantis at 17, Haley at 14. But that's the national average. I mean, excuse me, that's the Iowa RCP poll average. And I mean, you don't make up 30 points. You, you just don't. I mean, I know Drew said yesterday, let this thing play out. When in Republican primary, give me another example of a Republican primary that somebody has had that big a lead for that long a period of time. I mean, I understand the RNC doesn't make that call. I mean, the candidates make that call. The DeSantis campaign will at some point in time say, just not our turn. I mean, it's just not our turn. The money will dry up. They won't run a, a, a viable and proficient campaign. But it just seems to me that in the best interest of a Republican getting elected in 2024, there has to be some selflessness. And I don't see much of that because um, I think DeSantis and Haley are still positioning themselves for 2028. I mean, I don't know what their internal polls say. I don't know what conversations they have internally. But but I got to believe DeSantis and Haley are, can I be the 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 pro you know the the front runner in 2028 I, I don't know the answer to that let's go to the phone breeze breeze you are on the air kid i heard you were saying you talked with andre bauer you know i've called i sat there drinking well, i don't know i can't remember if he was or not so i want to say but i know i was you know, i was a tony gray i was drinking beer watching a football game and he was there <laughs> but anyway if you got a name like andre you really need a giant needs to go behind it that's kind of a tough name to too, sort of like being a boy named Sue. But anyway, uh, kids, you know, do you think any of these people, kids, seriously, are worth a damn? I mean, you just said it, that uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Dagon Haley and, uh, and the, the DeSantis, they aren't putting America first. Do you remember what I said that? And I don't even know that Trump does necessarily. America first, I don't think Trump puts America first. I think he puts Trump first. And if it, if it just happens that his idea of Trump versus uh, America winning, which is a good thing. But at the end of the day, I just don't see any damn body worth a damn that's doing anything for us, damn, or anywhere. I mean, that debate last night, I mean, daggone, I mean, those two guys have got to come in empathetic. I mean, it's not a damn one. I mean, I swear, kid, be you, Dave, or, what, or, or no shot, would be just as daggone good. A president as any of them. I've, I've determined this. I used to look up to the president and think that there was something special about a man that could become president of the United States. And anything that makes the person special to become president of the United States is probably not a good character trait. I just don't think any of them worth a damn. I just want to know what you think. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Look, I don't know, and I think that's I think that's a legitimate question and concern. And topic to discuss. I don't have any idea if Trump puts America first. I mean, he says that on the campaign trail. A certain audience have his uh, have his loyal support. He, he has their loyal support because they believe he's going to put America first. Here's what I think the enthusiasm behind Trump is. I, Josh, I don't think that it's we believe that at every turn Donald Trump is going to do what is in the American people's best interest. But we don't believe he's going to do what he's told. And I think there's a big difference. I mean, I know that we're splitting hairs here. I think Nikki Haley, I think that the, the average Republican primary voter, establishment excluded, I'm not talking about Jamie Dimon's of the world. I'm not talking about Ken Langone's of the world. They are in a rare, rare, rare class of people. 
I mean, that they can move the meter by, you know, taking the money in their bank account and calling their friends who have enormous amounts of money in their bank account. I mean, that they can move the meter that way. But I don't believe that the, I don't think every America first voter believes Trump looks after them at every turn. But I do believe that they think Trump doesn't take marching orders from anybody inside the beltway. That's kind of what I think you could be confident in. Um, what Trump does, we don't know. How much of America first? How much of the pro-worker um, you know, propaganda he says on the campaign trail does he take to the White House and Oval Office and execute in policy fashion? I don't think we know that. I mean, I, you know, I don't know that we could even measure that to some degree. But we believe that if Ron DeSantis is elected, he's going to do what he's told by a certain group of people who don't have the average American's best interest at heart. We believe that if Nikki Haley gets elected, she's going to the White House, she's going to the Oval Office, and she's going to do what she's told. And by what she's told, I'm talking about these people that she will become unbelievably beholden to. Nikki Haley is not going to get elected president without this, this enormous political action committee. This is an, an enormous political infrastructure. Uh, but the co- and that goes back to my original comment. It seems to me that DeSantis and Haley gave it their best shot, and they weren't able to muster any... Uh, any, I don't know, threat to Trump. And and now the Koch brothers have come in, and Jamie Dimon is participating in. A lot of the Wall Street investment uh, banking class is coming in, and the hedge fund guys are coming in, and they're saying, hey, you know, six months ago, we thought DeSantis could beat Trump. We don't believe that any longer. Let's can Haley. I mean, I, I personally, and I think I know enough about this to comment somewhat uh, proficiently, I don't think there's any way to beat him. I mean, I don't think you beat him in a primary. I don't think you beat him in a general. I mean, obviously, the chances are better in a general, but um, I mean, you've got a weak Democrat candidate. You've got a Republican kind of a workhorse on one side that j- just stays at 60%. I mean, it's numbers today. I'm looking today. Yesterday, there was 61.3% RCP poll average. Today, 62%. I mean, the story is not Haley surging. The story is Trump sustaining upper 50s, 60, lower 60s, month after month after month, poll after poll after poll. And the media tries to convince you that Haley's surging and Trump is plateauing. Well, I mean, if you plateau at 62, that's pretty good. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Speaking of Donald Trump, what's going on in his world? I don't know if you kept up with this much or not, but the... um. The case involving uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James uh, is in the stage where the defense is getting to make its case. That doesn't matter uh, because James found a compliant judge in Arthur, uh, was it Ingeron, uh, the guy that says, you know, Trump is guilty and we'll figure out a way to, you know, to, to, to ruin his empire. But yesterday, um, excuse me, this week, I think it might have been Tuesday. Well, Tuesday or Wednesday, a um, couple of Deutsche Bank Uh, managing directors uh, testified in uh, the proceedings and basically um, explained the traditional relationship a bank like Deutsche and its commercial division has with someone like Donald Trump. Now, I I doubt very seriously if Letitia James or uh, Arthur uh, Ingeron have any understanding of what that relationship looks like. But in the the testifying or in the, uh, the witnessing, um, David Williams, um, he is a, once again, a Deutsche Bank managing director. He tried to explain how it goes down. 
when they're when they're dealing with a client like Trump, and he says this. Um, it's kind of interesting to me. A Trump lawyer asked him a question about how do you make this assessment? How do you decide? Does Josh get a million or ten million? A million or ten billion? Is Josh credit worthy or not? Is the project viable or not? He said, um, here's his answer. Is the bank capable of reaching its own judgment based on the evaluation it makes of the guarantor's financial conditions? Certainly, yes, we are. As part of the due diligence, we subject a client's asset value to adjustments. It's part of our underwriting process. We apply to every client regardless of what's reported. I mean, regardless of what's reported. It, Josh, it doesn't matter what Trump puts on a sheet of paper. It doesn't matter what Trump says the cash flow is going to be. It doesn't matter what Trump says the asset's worth. In fact, Deutsche Bank says that in 2011 and 12, they reduced Trump's net worth from $4.2 billion to $2.3 billion at his opposition. I mean, he was opposed to it. It, it, was, a, it was a debate. They, Trump believed his properties were worth more than Deutsche Bank believed it was. But Deutsche Bank talked uh, about this atypical but not unusual. I mean, it's not everybody. But when you get in the world of high-flying finance and business, there, there's going to be some things there. And I just think it's absurd that Letitia James and this liberal judge who looks like the cover of Mad Magazine, I mean, it's just wild that they believe that that the Deutsche Bank would take Trump. T- Trump could send a um, a sheet of paper into the bank saying, this business is worth $5 billion. I need to borrow you a billion. You're at 20% loan to value. I mean, it's absurd to believe that. I mean, it's just hard for me to fathom that Donald Trump, once again, you and I agreed yesterday. Mm-hmm. He probably obstructed justice. He yes. absolutely mishandled classified information. He's not defrauded anybody. And they're trying to take down his business. I mean, they're trying to make it illegal for Donald Trump to operate his business in the state of New York. Um, in, in short, Deutsche Bank does its own research. They don't depend on what Trump says or how many cars go by or how many rooms it looks like he can lease. In a, they do their assessment. Right. They do a complete and thorough evaluation of what they believe the loan needs to be, what percentage rate. Um, Trump paid every note back. I mean, the Deutsche Bank uh, managing director said yesterday that they did all of their own research for every loan that Donald Trump ever took out with the bank. He paid every loan back in full. Deutsche Bank made big profits. Um, bank officials were happy. They wanted to do more business with Trump. Um, but somehow, that's the basis for a lawsuit with the New York Attorney General, um, I guess, to bring down Trump's business empire. And um, the judge Tuesday, I think, um, Arthur Engeron, said when, when, when listening to the testimony provided by some of the Trump attorneys, uh, it's obvious the guy knows nothing about business. I mean, he's a bureaucrat. He's a government worker. Um, he said... The mere fact that lenders were happy doesn't mean the statute wasn't followed. So he's basing all of his, you know, analysis and evaluation on the um, the technicals of the statute, what the statute says. And there are a lot of scholars that are saying if Trump did inflate the value of his properties, there, there may be some fine necessary to try and keep people from doing that because you could. I mean, we saw that with some of the Murdoch trial. We saw Murdoch get real friendly. I mean, he had a lot of influence and a lot of, um, I would imagine, ran a lot of money through that bank. And now we got a banker that's going to prison 
as 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 kind of a um a co-conspirator with with um Alec Murdoch in the in the low country of South Carolina. So I'm not saying that that something should not be done. I mean, I don't think anything should be done because I think it's a deal between the bank and the and the borrower, and the lender made his money, the borrower did his deal, and everybody walked away happy. But there is a statute about inflating the price or the inflating the value of properties and putting that on paper. But normally there's a fine, a million-dollar fine, a $200,000 fine. It's a big fine, and it shouldn't be that way. To me, there shouldn't be a fine. It should be a statute. I mean, that, that's the, I mean that, to me, that's the free market. Josh has an idea. Josh goes to the bank and asks them to finance his idea. The bank says yes or no. I mean, to me, that's the end of it. I, I don't want a bunch of government regulators and bureaucrats looking down, the, you know, looking down the every single word of every single deal. I mean, the banking sector in America would not exist. It couldn't work. I mean, if you had bureaucrats with oversight over every lending deal that has ever gone through or down, I mean, wow. But what do you think the private sector would look like today? It would be like China. It would be like like Russia. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Uh, Joe from Hartsville is calling in. Joe, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, guys. So far, everything up until the last couple of years is the American people have seen in the abstract. In other words, Keynesian theory, monetary policy, all that. Now they're seeing it in real life. And they're even feeling it themselves. We're losing the First Amendment, probably going to lose the Second Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, more than likely the Fifth Amendment and the Sixth Amendment. But we're losing them every day because people aren't pushing back on what they're doing. This garbage, when you have a politician who is a VA that runs for office and and says, I'm going to find something to get this man on before she's even elected, and, and they elect her, something's wrong with that. And I hope the, the American people wake up because you know, this Mayor Adams of New York has been complaining about the immigrant situation and how much it's costing New York. Well, now they're investigating Mayor Adams. That's that's their modus operandi. Uh, campaign violations, you got money here wrong. Now some woman has accused him of sexual harassment or improper whatever in 1993 because, you know, they they allowed him to go back infinitesimal years, which no one's probably still alive in that place that could even testify to it. But they're going after their own. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, they just locked up a guy for eight months because he put out a meme on Hillary Clinton back in 2016. So we're, we're losing stuff in real time. It's no longer abstract. All this money spending and Keynesian theory, that's all a the theory until you put it into practice and you see how it doesn't work. Inflation is going crazy. And right now we're in a wage uh, cost spiral because you can't ever keep up with it. They won't raise rates because that'll, that'll kill the, the treasuries. Maybe 
American people will wake up and uh, I hope they pay attention to that little whatever that was last night on Fox. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Take our second break of the morning. We'll be back in just a few moments. Takes Mondays, Josh, to make Fridays. Certainly does. Yeah, back in a few. One of the most amazing parts of politics today that that I can sense, and and once again, it's my opinion. I could be wrong. I don't think I am, but I could be, is the unwillingness for certain sorts of people to accept that a large percentage of Americans have figured out how this game is somewhat played. I'm not talking about getting the weeds, and I'm not talking about if you went to, uh, Josh, if you went to average Americans and said, you know, who is Jamie Dimon? I mean, 20%, maybe 10% would know who Jamie Dimon was. Who was Ken Langone? Probably a less percent. Who were the Koch brothers? Probably a lesser percent. But in theory and in practical purpose, I mean, we understand now. Um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit, Trump is, I mean, a lot of people say he's the right man at the right time. Well, I mean, he's the right man at the right time, and he's a bit lucky. His style, his bombast, his his in-your-face demeanor and mannerisms are his most important quality. I ate lunch yesterday with a guy, um, right of center, not not real right of center, but right of center, and he still can't grip. I mean, he can't come to grips with, you know, 60% of Republican voters supporting Trump and about, you know, roughly 50% of Americans supporting Trump. And, and I'm going like, you, you just, you, you fail, you're missing how much change has happened in America, how willing the American people are. Trump is, and I've said this and said this and said this and said this, a lot of Trump voters don't care for Trump. But they despise what, what, is, what, what is out to get Trump and destroy Trump. It, it, that, that's my reasoning and rationale for suggesting that every time these, these factions attack Trump and try to create division and uncertainty and drive a wedge between Trump and his voters. It only intensifies that relationship. It's almost like you, at some point in time, you've got to accept that you blew it. It's a little bit like the Gamecock fan base. I mean, I thought of this analogy. The Gamecock fan base will at some point in time stop supporting mediocrity. I don't know when that is, but, but what, what is the motivation for the AD and the board, the football coaches and the staff, the administrators, what is the motivation to get better if the numbers look exactly the same whether you want one game or ten games? That's the way, I mean, that, that's how the Republican establishment voters felt. And Rev said yesterday, we weren't, you know, we weren't Republican establishment voters. Yes, we were. We voted for Romney. We voted for McCain. We voted for Bush. We voted for Bush. We voted for Dole. I mean, maybe in your in your bones, in your gut, in your heart, you were not an establishment voter, but you did what you were told. So the Gamecocks are five and seven. They'll put season tickets on sale. The only time you're going to get change is when the season ticket, you know, uh, whatever application is sitting on the desk and you go like, I'm not supporting that mediocre nonsense any longer. Something has to change. And, I mean, I think, you know, half generation will walk to the edge of the abyss, but this time we jumped. And it's a little bit like the debate on inflation. You know, when will the $9 sub sandwich be $6 again? I don't think it ever will. 
Personally, I don't think it ever will. Now, some disagree with that. When will Republican voters go back to voting for a neocon or an insider or an establishment-oriented president? I'll give you an example. I think I understand the Republican electorate well enough today to know that if Jamie Dimon had kind things to say about me, and I'm talking about Nikki Haley, I would ask him to keep it to himself. But, but it's almost like you don't want to see right, what's right before your very eyes. You know there's something different kicking the Republican Party. I mean, God bless him. Drew McKissick will not buy into my theory of there's an asymmetrical relationship right now between the Republican donor class. Let me tell you, if there's not an asymmetrical relationship, why is nobody the donor class on Trump's team? I mean, why, yeah. why does breaking news every day include some prominent member of the donor class supporting DeSantis or, or Haley? I mean, how many stories have broken recently about the donor class accepting the fact that Trump is running away with this? Biggest lead, longest period of time. But for whatever reason, you, you can, you can, it's almost like self-indoctrination. You can, you can indoctrinate yourself into believing that what you see is not real. Gavin Newsom kind of did some of that last night and just the opposite. Gavin Newsom basically said, I know how you feel about the economy, but you're wrong. Don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe what the cashier at the grocery store tells you. Don't believe what the attendant at the drive-thru tells you. I mean, the economy's good. Binomics is working. And the guy that goes to the grocery store goes, there's no way that guy can believe that. Well, I mean, I don't know if he's lived inside that bubble so much or if he's just intentionally lying. I don't know. Um, Gavin Newsom didn't perform well last night with a little bit I watched. I didn't watch much of it because I'm bored with that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so, I mean, you, you almost know what's going to happen before it even happens. They're pointless. Yeah, I mean, and... it, it, it's, it's, it's almost like watching another episode of Seinfeld. Nah. You know, here's another <laughs> debate. wonder what they'll talk about. I bet there'll be some interesting content here. No, it's just, I mean, it, to me, it's not interesting. It's not entertaining. It's not in, you know, in, in enlightening or engaging. And I just kind of move on and find something else, something else to watch. And then Hannity wants to be the third candidate. You yeah. know, he thinks a lot of himself and his opinion. He wants to be the third candidate on uh, on the stage. There was a little, uh, it, it was kind of interesting to me to watch Hannity behave as a liberal journalist typically behaves in a, in a real debate. In other words, when Trump and Biden do debate, if they ever do, I don't know if we'll ever see a Biden-Trump debate if they're the nominees, but Hannity acted a little like, I guess on our side, we've been exposed to on the other side when Candy Crowley or George Stephanopoulos or one of the mainstream media personalities, you know, kind of behave a certain way, show favoritism toward one candidate over, over another. But um, it's just hard for me to fathom that people in politics today can't see right before their very eyes that something is different. I'm not talking about a little bit different. I'm not talking about the sitting some, you know, one of those rogue waves. I mean, the tide is different today. It's not, you know, the tide always comes to here. And then every, you know, every 347,000th wave, we have a rogue wave that goes, you know, 20 feet further inland than it normally does. No, I mean, the rogue wave is the normal now. And how do you, how do you digest or consume American politics today? I mean, I got buddies of mine, good friends, Republican and Democrat, and they believe there's going to be a kind of a resettling. I mean, there's, we're going to get back to business as usual. And I keep, you're, you're wrong. I mean, there, there's no chance. There is zero chance that we get back to business as usual. This is the new normal. And until someone embraces this new normal, Trump is going to be the only racehorse you can ride.
despite his imperfections, despite his flaws. And I love these analytical people who try and defend the way government's behaved over the last 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, this is not a one-year evolution. I mean, this is a generational thing. I mean, this has happened over the last 20 or 25 or maybe even, even 30 years, and here we are. And it's hard for me to believe that someone out there is not willing to accept that, hey, things are different. I mean, Trump's at 60% in, uh, in Republican primary polls. Trump's at 50% in about half the general election polls. I mean, think of that, guys. Think of everything they've thrown at Donald Trump. I mean, just, just I mean, I'd love to do a list. I mean, I don't know if I got enough ink and paper, but I'd love to do a list of how much resistance he's encountered on the campaign. There's no question he brought about some of that on his own. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Some of that is self-inflicted. <coughs> but, but, but as he's attacked, his numbers at least whole. At times, they increased. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Rev's back in the studio, and we touched on this yesterday. want to make sure that we officially launch this morning. It's December the 1st. That is the month of Christmas, um, the, the giving season. And Rev and I came up with an idea several years back that you guys have really, really helped us with, and that is the, um, the, the partnership we have with Pepsi Cola of Florence and the, the season of giving. We do an annual fundraiser. And we don't ask our listeners for money. I mean, I'm not running for office. Uh, we got salespeople that go out and solicit advertising dollars. And, you know, I get paid to do this job. But but every year, Rev and I do ask something of our listeners, and that is to financially support this um, this endeavor that we perceive to be very worthwhile. The, the, the families that we've identified, there's six families. We've identified those families, not Rev and I, but rather the youth mentors of the PD, which is formerly what Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Mm -hmm. and the Boys and Girls Club of the PD have identified six anonymous families that have had things happen in their life that will disallow Christmas to be normal. And in in the spirit of Mr. Frank Avant, who I can honestly say this, I mean, I've thought a lot about after I said it, should I have said that, the most generous man I've ever known. I mean, he's deceased now, passed away, but he's very instrumental in Rev and I being together on radio. He was a financial partner in, in Rev's early days, and when I took the job to host this show, he was a financial partner with Harold Miller, since so become community broadcasters. The one thing I learned about radio, you don't own it long. Um, it's, <laughs> it seems to me that you kind of buy it, you do what you do with it, you sell it, and move on to something else, <laughs> clusters of stations and markets and whatnot. It's just the nature of the business. But Mr. Avant was revered in our community, and the reason we're using anonymous families is uh, the majority of his good work was done anonymously. Um, I've, I've told this story. Um, I'm in a, an office with my banker, and we're talking about certain things. And I had a relationship with my banker that if the phone rang, he would answer and say, just sit tight one minute, and he didn't ask me to walk out of the room. Now, I would imagine if something were strictly confidential, he would have had an obligation to ask me to walk out of out of the room, but um, but the phone rang while I'm in my banker's office, and he said, "Okay, you want?" He's on his computer. He said, "Okay, you want five thousand given to this charity? You want seventy five hundred given to this? Oh, seventeen thousand five hundred given to this charity? You want you know twenty five hundred given to this charity?" And you were all done it anonymously. And I and you know the, yeah okay I got it that was seven contributions totaling a hundred, whatever that number was. And, um, 
And when he hung the phone up, he said, if Mr. Frank Avant doesn't die soon, he's going to give all of his money away. And he'd done exceedingly well financially. And we went to Pepsi of Florence because that was his pride and joy. Uh, if you ever went out and saw Mr. Avant, this is kind of crazy. I mean, he owned the joint. He and I mean, his family owned it. He didn't own it individually, but his family owned it. But he'd have a name tag, you know, just like every other mm-hmm. worker out there and wanted to be treated like everybody else. And we've had people that worked beside Mr. Avant for years and years say that he would give them cash money and say, you know, such and such is having a hard time. He's embarrassed to talk about it. Go pay his, his light bill. You know, go pay his power bill. Go pay his rent payment. Go pay his house payment or whatever. And 99% of all the good work he did, I mean, he was blessed financially, and he knew that. But 99% of the giving he did was anonymously. And and I just think that's a the anonymous family is kind of a tribute to the anonymous giving of Mr. Avant. And, um, and we are asking you, our listeners to help us make this a success. It, it's inspiring. It's, 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 it's encouraging. It warms my heart. Uh, as we get closer to Christmas, when we walk out back in our storage area and there are stacks of toys and I mean, it, one of the most humbling parts of this rev is, um, some kids want socks, you know, or a bed sheet, but they're not asking for above and beyond, you know, they're, they're asking for some of the necessities that we take so for granted. But, but I want to thank the, um, the youth mentors of the PD. I want to thank the Boys and Girls Club of the PD. I want to thank Pepsi of Florence. I want to thank Swap Payment Solutions. I want to thank Anderson Brothers Bank. Uh, walk Up Electrical. I saw Tommy walk up a couple of days ago. Hubs Farmland. Uh, Trinity Auto Glass. I want to thank all of those companies that have agreed to support what we're trying to do here. And this is kind of um, mine and Rev's project. And I know the sales ladies get a little bit frustrated with having to go out and fight the crowds and do the shopping and whatnot, but they're always uplifted by going out and doing that and delivering, you know, what it is you guys help us buy because this doesn't fly unless you help. And, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Um, inflation's hurting. I mean, it, there's no doubt about it. We complain about the price of groceries and the price of, of gas and the price of uh, just the cost of living in general. And, uh, and I don't know how much you've got to spare. But, but I know a lot of you have a little to spare. A few of you have a lot to spare. But, but all of us have something to spare. And, um, and, and I guess I am soliciting contributions. Uh, I don't think it's cheesy in, in the most genuine way imaginable to help us make this one-time-a-year event that is very important to Rev and I uh, a success. And, um, and I'll ask him, did I do a, a good enough job at explaining that? You explained it very well. Now, here's how we get it done. And we, that's where I was making the handoff because <laughs> you're the technical guy. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, so we have it, a banner on our web page, on the Live 95 web page. So no matter where you're listening, if you go to live953.com, uh, there's a Season of Giving banner near the top of the page. You just click on that. It'll take you right to the Season of Giving page. And it kind of explains exactly what you just said about uh, Frank Avant and how we've come across the list. We actually have a link to a list of the requested items of families. It's anonymous, obviously, uh, but we do have like um, boy age 15 and what's on his wish list. Now, I'm, I'm looking at the list right now. Uh, there's a 15-year-old boy who's asking for joggers, sweatpants, a hoodie, boxers, Crocs. Okay, there's some toys on the list, some Hot Wheels toys. There's a a 14-year-old girl who's looking for face and skincare items and Crocs and perfume. Uh, There's family gifts that a mother has requested, a space heater, um, an air fryer, uh, towels, hand cloths, lotion. I mean, so there's all kinds of things that these families are in need of. And you can see the list. It's it's right there if you click on uh, the link on the page. Uh, There's also 
importantly, the donate button. So if you click on donate and feel it in your heart that you'd like to share and help us help the folks that need the help, um, it is so much appreciated. And you're right, it's it's heartwarming for us because when we get a little bit closer to Christmas, our uh, we have volunteers here at the radio station and at Pepsi of Florence who work hard. They go shopping and buy these items, and we gather them up you know, and, and get them ready to to get delivered to the families. And when we have the items in our warehouse and it's a very heartwarming, heartwarming feeling when we can see the, the results of, of our collective activity here in trying to, to, to do a good thing here in the season of giving. A good thing to recognize all the good things that Mr. Frank Avant did. Absolutely. And, and the entire Avant family. I mean, they've been very supportive of this. And it was Frank's dead and gone. He's on the other side, so to speak. But the entire Avant family, because obviously you don't do something like this without reaching out to the family to make sure they're comfortable with it. They were, and they have been unbelievably supportive of that. So, yeah, we're thanking, you know, the the, the community broadcasters family, the Pepsi-Cola family. Uh, I want to say, again, Swap Payment Solution, Anderson Brothers Bank, Walk-Up Electric, Hubs Farmland, and Trinity Autoglass, but also the Avants for their willingness to allow this to take place and then their um their generous support of what we're trying to do here. And, and, I, and you know, the Christmas spirit, is, is I mean, it's just, just it's annual, it's real, that there's something that stirs the soul a little bit differently uh, this time of the year. Um, it is a it is a time of the year that people who have a faith uh, like I do, Christian faith, you celebrate the birth of a Savior, and generosity seems to be a little more common. Um, loving your neighbor seems to be a little more common uh, this time of the year. That it's it's kind of it's, it's almost like I wish every month could be December and people exhibited that sort of um behavior and and love and support and you know giving to one another but uh but this is important to me and Reb and uh, and you are our family I mean you, and I mean that sincerely uh you are our you know four day four five days a week four hours a morning uh, we kind of gather and we we love on one another at times and we don't care much for one another at times somebody calls and aggravates somebody and somebody else calls and aggravates that next caller so uh but but it's uh it's a unit. I mean, we've created somewhat of a unit here, and um, and this is the way we can all, uh, Trump supporters, DeSantis, Haley, you know, a few Biden supporters that may be out there that can't see the light of day. Uh, we're trying. We're trying hard to get you to come around to the good side, but um, but we all agree that, you know, helping your neighbor is a human responsibility and obligation that we have one to another, and there are six anonymous families that, that you know, if we don't succeed – they don't have much of a Christmas, so I'm asking each and every one of you to um to give as much as you can, and and once again I'll accept, and you, and you know it, you you know your financial situation much better than I do. You know how much you can give, um, but I'm asking each of you to uh, give a little, give a little, and how can they do that again, Rev? Just go to the Live ninety five website, which is live nine five three dot com. Good deal, good deal. Um, let's get back to a couple of stories. Because I think that there's a consensus here. Um, Rev, the point we made this morning, uh, or the point we've tried to make this morning, is it's it's pretty hard for me to believe. And and I and I'm thinking, am I missing something here? I mean, there's just I mean, I, I try to be pretty decent at playing chess, but is there something I'm missing here? I read yesterday, might have been in Bloomberg, um, about Haley's meetings with these high flying financiers and some of the political action committees. And as I read, I, I began, it began to dawn on me that the, the majority of work done by the DeSantis campaign and Haley campaign are being done by 
ancillary forces. They're being done by political action committees. And most successful campaigns, the campaign is primary. And the political action committees are secondary. Uh, the, the campaign, that's the candidate and the, you know, the, the infrastructure, the organization. And a side of that is these, these, these ancillary forces. You can like, you can not like, you can love Citizens United. You can not like Citizens United. You can say Soros is the evil, wicked, you know, puppet master. You can say the Koch brothers are the evil, wicked puppet master. But it seems to me, and the point I tried to make earlier about Nikki Haley, um, I mean, I guess I have a, a more personal relationship with Nikki than most. She and I ran. Uh, she and I showed up on the scene at about the same time. I mean, she was a House member, ran for governor in 2010. I was a county council member, ran for lieutenant governor in 2010, and we both won. We both won. Um, now, obviously, her trajectory has been different than mine. I'm very comfortable where I am. I kind of, I don't know if I trade with her, to be honest with you. But, but anyway, um, if I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm politically astute, and I'm aware of what my surroundings are and where my electorate is, and somebody as influential as Jamie Dimon says, Governor Haley, I want to support you. I mean, I've got all these friends on Wall Street that make enormous amounts of money, and we can give to political action committees, you know, anonymously. There we go with the word again. Or we can give directly to your campaign. And it seems to me that Haley and DeSantis are directing the majority of energy toward their political action committees. And that's just, that's awkward to me. That that means I don't have the confidence in myself to beat Trump. You know, DeSantis or Nikki Haley having the confidence to beat Trump. But I think there's a certain amount of tone deafness here. I mean, does Haley and DeSantis believe that allowing the political action committees to basically take over the primary responsibility of getting someone elected, I mean, do they, do they believe that the Republican primary voter will accept that? It, it, it's almost like, am I, what, what am I missing here? I mean, it's, it's so obvious to me. And if it's obvious to me, there are a lot smarter people than I running Haley's campaign, running uh, DeSantis's campaign, but they're farming out a lot of the primary responsibilities to groups of people that the Republican primary voter doesn't care much for. In, in other words, the reason Trump is the dominant force is insiderism or, or establishmentism. Um, there is no way. I mean, Rev knows me getting up there. Jamie Dimon called me and said, Ken, I think you can beat Trump. I mean, I, it's going to be hard, but I think if we drum up enough money and, and, and you know, and, and we have millions and millions to, to kind of lift you up and bring him down, which is what campaign funding is about, and that's why you want the money, you first of all tell people how great you are, and then you tell them how bad your opponent is. I mean, that's kind of campaign uh, strategy. But, but, before I hung the phone up with Jamie Dimon, and I'd be flattered to have America's banker call me wanted to help, but I'd say, Jamie, can we keep this between ourselves? <laughs> well, what, what do you mean? I'm Jamie Dimon. I'm, yeah, I'm the president exactly of, yeah, I'm, I'm the bank president of J.P. Morgan. That's your problem, bro. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my peeps don't care much for the bank president of J.P. Morgan, and it's just hard for me to believe that Haley and Christie and DeSantis don't see that, don't sense that, don't understand that have no interest in that, aren't curious about how to navigate those complexities. And, and Trump does. Now, now, we can say, is he honest? Is he genuine? Is he real? Does he mean what he says? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I can't answer that question. But he understands that electorate. And I got to believe if Jamie Dimon called Donald Trump, wanted to support a political action committee, Trump would say, okay, I want your money, 
but let's keep it on the down low. <laughs> let's not tell anybody how much, you know, you rich guys on <laughs> yeah. Wall Street are helping me. I don't want you to hurt me with my peeps. But I mean, I think you do. I, I really and truly think that is a grave error that a lot of Republicans are making today. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Another thing that Gavin Newsom touched on last night that I found very interesting um, is defending the state of affairs in California. Um, the only the only metric that matters to me, I mean, you can have spin and, you know, uh, you take this data and you try to uh, tell the story a certain way, another data. In the history of California, they've never lost a house seat until in the most recent census. Oh. So it's always been a growth state as oh, far as I mean, population. It was, it's, it's the land of milk and honey. Yep. I mean, it manna from heaven. I mean, look, look yeah. at I mean, it. How do you screw California up? It's hard, <laughs> they right? They figured I mean, out it'd a way. It'd be real hard. I mean, it's it's natural beauty. It's an enormous state, a huge economy. It's great weather. It's northern California in a certain uh, quality of life. Southern California in a certain quality of life. I mean, it's got an ocean. It's got, a, I mean, the, the, the most... I mean, the longest coastline of any state in America. I count Florida made, you know, with both sides. I mean, the West Coast and East Coast of Florida. I don't know. I'm never, that'd be an interesting yeah, question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, is the coastline in California longer than the coastline in Florida because you've got that peninsula? Yeah, Florida, yeah you got the panhandle sure. and then all the way around the West Coast and East Coast of Florida. That is very interesting. But California's a big old state. It is. Um, big old state. But anyway, Gavin Newsom has presided over a state, the land of milk and honey manna from heaven that lost a house seat and never before was California now did, um, lost a house seat. I heard that DeSantis held up a picture of human feces from the streets of San Francisco. So he's also, it's not only milk and honey. It's, it's, That's, yeah, it's human yeah. debris. Um, yeah. But, but I don't know that, well, I mean, I guess that'd be more local politics to me. You know what I mean? That, that would be the mayor of San Francisco, it's kind of interesting, Ray. Yeah, but if you're the governor of a state, I mean, if would you not get involved and say, "Guys, what's up?" But you, but he, we got to clean this up. I think you'll agree to this. When you talk local politics, it's different when you're talking about Florence Sumter, Orangeburg, or you're talking about New York or San Francisco. Oh, sure, of course. I mean, you're governing one of the biggest cities in America. It's almost like governing a state. I mean, you got all these. Or I read something about Giuliani one day when Giuliani was the mayor of New York. Um, he oversaw the inspecting of more bridges than 42 states. <laughs> I mean, just think, it might have been 32 states. I mean, it was some crazy number. Yeah. He had more law enforcement officers reporting to him than 23 states. So when you say the mayor of a city, you got to be careful about the mayor of a city, the mayor of a city. What city? You know, Boise, Idaho, or New York City? You know, San Francisco or Sumter, Florence, Orangeburg? And I just... I was interested in what sort of performance Gavin Newsom would give. Um, a little bit, I think the genius of what Newsom did, if there's any genius in it, you know that Hannity's not going to give you a fair shake. So you can always blame the moderator. And I think Hannity's perceived as, I mean, you know that guy's going to be a bully and he thinks he's the third candidate on the on the stage. So in that respect, I don't think Newsom had anything to lose. But the most interesting follow-up, to today is, did Gavin Newsom's phone ring? Well, I mean, they're three hours behind. I mean, would Gavin Newsom's phone ring today? But because he hit it out of the park, and they're tired of Biden, to believe Biden's going to lose to Trump, and because that's the only that's the only thing Biden brings to the table. 
I mean, the only reason Biden got the nominee in, in uh, nomination in 16, they thought he could beat Trump. And um, uh, he did. Uh, yeah. Okay. Did he? Uh, he did. Uh, Josh was looking at trying to answer the phone in. <laughs> well, if you think be back, that guy. if you think back to 2020 now, let's think about it. So Biden lost the caucuses in Iowa, lost New Hampshire, won South Carolina, and then, quote, won the presidency. I'm just trying to remember how that happened. That's how it happened. Yeah. That's how it happened. Is that correct? 843-661-0937 is our number. Phones are ringing, but callers aren't getting what's up, through. What's up with that, Josh? It might be his end because he was coming through, but it was very, like, scratchy. Oh, okay. okay. You know, so I I don't – it may have been us, but I don't know. Get to a better get to a better place. How many of you have seen the story about Pfizer and the, the Texas AG suing Pfizer for misrepresenting the efficacy or effectiveness – of the, uh, of the, the vaccine um, using highly misleading rhetoric, I think is what the words of the uh, Texas AG said. Um, now, obviously, there's some politics in here. You ready? To con Americans into getting the company's COVID-19 um, shot, despite its failure to prevent infection or transmission. That's painted with a fairly broad brush there. But it will be very interesting to watch Pfizer respond to the accusations made by the uh, the Texas AG. How much of this is politics? Most of it. But what do we find out as we, you know, ask questions of Pfizer about the vaccine, um, its efficacy and effectiveness, which aren't the same thing. Um, but in the in the what about in the discovery part of this, Pfizer will be forced to divulge some information that we previously not has not been made available uh, to the public, and um, basically. Pfizer and the government conspired to bully the American people into getting shots that may or may not work. I thought of you, um, Josh, but I remember when Pfizer, the Pfizer CEO said they'd come out with this booster and it was hundred percent effective. And I'm like, you, you just, I mean, you just came out with it. I mean, there's been no clinical testing. There's been no diagnosis. There's been no, you know, the way we normally do in, in some of these vaccine processes, um, that that's that's always going to be an unknown question, or the, the the answer will be unknown to that. We know the question: Did Pfizer conspire with the government? Did government conspire with Pfizer? I mean, I think I know the answer. Hell yeah, of course they did. To what degree? I mean, to what degree did Pfizer conspire with the government? The government conspired with Pfizer to adjust or manipulate or distort or or mislead the American public into. It would be a question I'd be interested in, and you'd have to get in a private answer because nobody's going to call into a radio show and do this. Is the percentage of people who didn't get vaccinated and 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 regret it, or got vaccinated and regret it? I mean, how many? What percentage of Americans out there got the vaccine, had some sort of complication, and regret ever getting the vaccine? What percentage of people didn't get the vaccine, got COVID? had complications, wish they'd had the vaccine to minimize some of the complications. I don't know that we'll ever find the answer to that. Um, it's kind of interesting. The majority of postmortems, you don't hear anything about. I mean, you got to believe that if Pfizer hit it out of the park and the vaccine worked the way the government said it was going to work and the way, you know, so, some of the, um, let's be careful here, some of the healthcare industry said it was going to work. Um, they would be telling you stat after stat after stat, but you're not seeing many stats. You're not seeing much reporting. And that leads me to believe that, you know, a lot of you were misled. Um, a lot of you made bad decisions. I didn't. I mean, I made a personal decision and you made certainly a personal decision, but in retrospect, 
Um, I think that my family is kind of the embodiment of the way it should have played out. And my fa- everybody in my family had COVID. Nobody in my family's vaccinated. Nobody in my family got it twice. I mean, it, that adhering to the traditions of, uh, you know, what, what do we call it? Uh, natural natural immunity. immunity. Mass immunity, natural immunity, herd immunity, whatever you like to call yeah. it there. It's kind of what Sweden did. Um, go back and look at some of the uh, facts of Sweden. You know, if Sweden had blown it, I mean, how many media reports would be would be inundated with with the the you know the Swedish government acted so irresponsibly? Um, for those of you who took the vaccine, you were misled. I mean, you had a right to make that decision without question, and some of you probably made the right decision. But it's hard to argue that you were not fundamentally misled. What you were told was absolutely unbelievably untrue, and to what extreme? I guess is the question I'm asking, and I don't know the answer to that. I don't have any idea um, how many people got the vaccine that had complications, how many people didn't get the vaccine, got COVID, and had even more severe complications. But we'll find out some of that in this lawsuit with Pfizer and the um, the Texas AG because their words, I mean, here's straight out of the lawsuit. You ready? Um, engaged in false, deceptive, and misleading acts and practices by making unsupported claims. Um, and they're actually... They're finding a place to have standing in the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. I mean, think of that, the Texas Deceptive Trade uh, Practices Act. Pfizer created the false impression that its vaccine provided a substantially greater amount of protection against COVID-19 infection than what it afforded in reality. Pfizer undertook a continuous and widespread campaign comprised of a deceptive concerning alleged uh, above for the purpose of misleading the public about the efficacy of his vaccine. It kind of the question, I mean, it's, it's not a crime to mislead. It's a crime to intentionally mislead. I mean, you know, a lot of people have misled. A lot of people have gotten it wrong, made mistakes, thought this, and it ended up being something different. But I think what the Texas AG is trying to, there was a, a an intentional misleading of the public, and it falls under the violating of Texas, the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Williams in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Good morning, Williams. Again, I got good news for you. Gas prices have fallen for 65 days in a row. That is good news. I'm happy. 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 That's good. Okay, what do you know about Rosa Parks? Well, I mean, I, I know she was a civil rights pioneer. She was the most important black woman ever because she started a you know, civil rights movement. And why in the world do Florida want to ban a book by about Rosa Parks? Tell me the reason why. I can't imagine them wanting to ban a books recognizing her contribution to civil rights. Well, that's what he's doing in Florida. That's why America First is doing. And one more thing. Trump last day in office. The White had the White House had more razor wire razor wire around it than all the prisons in Georgia and South Carolina. Thank you. Thank you, Williams. That's Pelosi. Pelosi was the one doing you still there, Williams? Yeah, I'm here. Let me ask you a question. Going back to Rosa Parks real quick. You think America's a racist country? 
Well, why would they want to ban the book? Why they, don't you? Don't you? But I mean, but uh, you're 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 insin- you're, you're no. But but what you're doing is you're insinuating that 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 America First is a racist political movement. And I'm asking a question. Hey, hey, it, I mean, I, I'm giving you a chance to clarify that. Do you believe? Hey, hey, do you why, believe why that America First voters? Well, I mean, do, Why would you want to ban the book of the history of Rosa Parks? I, I don't think. I mean, I just don't buy that. I mean, I know what you're what, telling me, what, but I don't buy that to be true. Hey, hey, what's the reason? Well, you tell me what you well, think the reason is. Well, I do, I'm taking. I'm asking you. What's the reason? Why would you ban a book like that? I don't see any reason to ban a book that celebrates a woman who made a contribution to civil rights. I can't imagine hey, the state of Florida would do that. Florida. They do it in Florida all over Republican states. I'd love you to answer my question, though. What your question is again? I mean, you're insinuating that America First is a racist political movement. Is that your argument? I mean, are you arguing that that America First is racist? Well, you got two choices: either they are, are they not? Well, why would you ban the book? About her. Well, you're not going to answer the question. Thank you, Williams. Appreciate it. 843-661-0937. I mean, if you're making an accusation or insinuation, I mean, let's say that Williams is right. I don't buy that. I mean, I just for the life of me don't believe that people in Florida would tolerate the banning of a book that celebrates a leader in civil rights. There's got to be a lot more to that story. Now, if that's the narrative that the mainstream media wants people to believe in, that's the narrative you're going to hear. That's the only part of the story you're going to hear. But Williams made an insinuation that America Firsters are racist. And when given the opportunity to go on the record and say, yeah, I believe they are, he refused to answer um, the question. I just think if you're going to if you're going to take a stand, take a stand. Don't dance around the edges, so to speak. Let's go to the phone. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning, Rujan. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, listen, um, the, the, the issue with that, they didn't ban the book. All right, they just, the, the, the publisher just, did not make any reference as to uh, to what her her race was, and 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 I, I, I get so daggone frustrated with these folks that that just follow the narrative of the news media and just take it and just go with it and run around and just spread this nonsense that you know America's America's racist and and Williams needs to he needs to check himself because. He wouldn't even answer your question. He wouldn't even answer, you know, if America, if, if America is racist. The bottom line is, if America was a racist nation, his ass would be down in Africa right now. I say that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black man, and that's it. But the reason I was calling was, listen, guys, I was, I was, I, I for the past three years, I have not met anybody or run into anybody or had anybody in my circle that have had the flu but they've had covid now if if you have if you have no insurance uh and you want a flu shot it's going to cost you about mm, you go to, to, to some of these you, you know some of the the pharmacies it's going to cost you about 25 bucks but if you have no insurance and you want to get a covid shot something that's been a little bit skeptical. It's going to cost you about a hundred and ten up. And and I was actually watching, you know, the 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 the, 
college football games and, you know, TV over the weekend. And I noticed that uh, Pfizer's ads are like on blast. I mean, they're, 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 they have these ads all over the place. And then you have, you know, sponsored by Pfizer, sponsored by Pfizer. So if you're getting $110 a shot, you know, a, a, a hit for a shot, I mean, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's pretty interesting to me. But I, like I said, I don't know anybody that, that's had flu, had the flu in, in the past two and a half years. Thank you, Rujan. I don't know that, I mean, that's kind of an interesting point. Has anybody been out of work with the flu since COVID showed up in 2020? I mean, remember we graphed. I mean, we had this, um, this incident report with CDC and we daily remember Rev, how many people died and we we're having oh, yeah. a tremendous amount of people dying, but nobody was dying of the flu. I mean, on a yearly average, a couple of hundred thousand people die of the flu, older people, uh, they're, 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 they've got some immune deficiency. They're having issues with their health. Anyway, they get a flu, flu evolves into pneumonia. They pass away at the age of 89, 90, 91, 92, whatever. Um, and remember when we started trying to just graph and chart and keep up with how many people were dying of COVID and we realized that nobody was dying of the flu. Um, I, I, have you seen a sign outside a pharmacy recently that says flu shot? Um, I actually was asked the other day by when I was picking up some medications, you have your flu shot yet? Okay. Okay. So we're back to normal or back to some sense yeah. of normal yeah. when it comes to the, uh, to the flu shot. I still see at several of the, uh, the national and local pharmacies, this, you know, COVID shot available, COVID shot, COVID booster, COVID, you, you definitely know, see that. booster six or seven or eight or nine. I mean, it was quite a profitable endeavor, and I stand by my comments. The two most profitable, the two most profitable industries in America, in the world, is sickness and war. Let's go to the phone. Michael in Florence. Good morning, Michael. You're on. Yeah, good morning. So I do uh, IT work, and right after COVID started, I was uh, contracted by a company to install these machines to manage vaccines. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a doctor's office, but, you know, they have a little refrigerator, has a little temperature monitor on it, and they have, you open it up, and it's pretty empty, and there's room in there, and there's some vials of vaccines. Well, the problem is the vaccines expire, and they need special care. So now they put in these machines. Each machine holds 800 vials of vaccines. And I've been placing two of these units into a local health care provider that markets to low-income people. And it's just phenomenal to me that, you know, six so two in each location, and some are in the pediatric side. So, of course, we're vaccinating people who really have little to say about it. You know, somebody tells you your kid needs this vaccine, most people don't debate that. And so it just shows me that these uh, pharmaceutical companies have said, well, hey, you know what? This vaccine thing's making us a lot of money. And the, uh, the machines, I'm pretty sure, were purchased with COVID money. And it's just amazing to me how after COVID, vaccines are big business. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Yeah, and, and some people and some sectors of the economy had their business grow by 
I mean, I, I know a business uh, fairly locally that grew by 2,500%. Say that again, mm-hmm. 2,500%. Wow. Thank you, big brother. Says Thank how, you, Uncle Sam. How often is it come down to the money? Is that some of the time or most of the time? That would be all of the time, Royal Rev of Radio. Okay, just checking. Yeah, take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. We've only got one member of the delegation. One other <laughs> member of the delegation sent me a text, so I expect him to be um, showing this way soon. I think we got our Fridays mixed up. Okay. I think some of the delegation thought we'd be um, oh, next, gone this Friday. That's next Friday. But that's next Friday that we'll be at the beach at the Hilton on behalf of, I mean, we're doing the legwork for Jay and Philip and Mike, trying to help them stay above the fray by going as activists. Right, Rev? <laughs> that's right. I mean, we're doing that's their right. work. We're, we're not doing God's work. We're doing Philip and Jay and Mike's work in making sure Republicans get elected. So we got two members of the delegation. And I want to make sure you know this. The delegation hour is brought to you by the John Fetterman Hoodie Company. The delegation hour is brought to you by Greystone Properties. That's right. Right? <laughs> right? That's right. He's so you first. decide which one is real and what. Could you make a little more noise yeah. later? Come on could in you the make door. Hey, hey, yeah, hey. Well, I'm, I'm sorry we're in your hey, way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry we're in your way, Lo. Um <laughs> You okay, Jordan? Yeah, he kind of put me up in the corner yeah. there. And he's knocking stuff over. He, yeah. He's in a hurry this morning. <laughs> I guess he is. I don't know. So we got a call? Uh, we do. And the call's for the delegation? Uh, specifically, yes. Yeah, here's what with Josh. Can you do this? I've never instructed you to do anything at the phone, right? I've never said, don't let them call. Don't let them talk about this. We do need to know whether they're calling to talk to the delegation or the delegation. Could they make it clear <laughs> right. when they call in? If they're talking for the delegation or the delegation, okay? She actually said the legislation, but okay, okay, or is it the legislation? Legislation. The legislation. There, there you legislation. go. Yeah, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. It's uh, Connie in Florence. Hi, Connie. You are on with Representative Lowe and Representative Jordan. Okay, great. Good morning, guys, and thanks. Um, in January, you'll be back at the state house. So, what? voter transparency bills do you expect to pass through the grapevine i'm hearing four bills already paper ballots and closed primaries i'm hoping eric will be dropped because eric shares our information the south carolina constitution says the vote must be private and the counting will be transparent what say y'all about voter transparency? Thanks. Thank you, Connie. You appreciate that. Either one of you guys want to jump on that? So I would say this. Voter transparency election laws are something we look at on a very frequent, regular basis. Um, it wasn't that long ago we went through really a wholesale remodel uh, of the issue, um, and we looked at all different things, and we, we outlawed a lot of things. Um, we dealt with y'all remember the mobile um, voting truck down in Charleston and said, nope, that's a dangerous thing to put in place. We can't do that. That was, that was Zuck Bucks. That was, Zuck- I mean, that, that was Mark Zuckerberg right. money that bought that truck. That's right. We looked at the possibility. Of, we looked at a lot of states and how they got it right and how they got it wrong. One of the things they got it wrong were drop boxes. We're scared to death of those. Those are opportunities for fraud and misuse. So we've dealt with a lot of those things. But again, back to where I started, uh, that's not something you can you can ever stop looking at. Um, one of the things that Connie mentioned there uh, was closed primary. We continued to debate that issue. We we actually 
took closed primary up on the floor of the house. I think it was either last year or year before, probably, I think year before. Um, but ultimately felt like there weren't the votes in the Senate to really get over that hump. And we didn't want to uh, pull down the rest of those um, um, those improvements, some of which I just mentioned. So I, I would anticipate we're going to have um, at least a couple hearings on election reform again uh, come the new year. I don't know that it will have legs to get through this time because, remember, next year is an election year. Uh, and so when you're making changes, you always have to give the folks who run the elections on the ground time to keep up with and understand and, and put into effect what those changes actually are. But it will be something that will be discussed again. Do they give you ideas of how to help make sure the election has better integrity? And I'm talking about the commissions around the state. Sure. So the commissions around the state, they, I believe all of them belong to the South Carolina, I think they call it, they go by SCARE. I'm not sure that's a great um, <laughs> title for them to it have. Is, but but that's, their, that's their group. Uh, they meet, uh, they have a meeting on an annual basis. You'll definitely, they invite legislators to come down. I've gone a couple times over the years now. Um, as a former, you know, member of the Florence County Election Commission, I, I can tell you, I, I know a lot of the issues they deal with. Uh, one of the things, and I would encourage the people listening to the show today and on a regular basis, you can you can actually volunteer and participate in the running of our elections. And you, you won't make a fortune, but you'll make a few bucks off of it. Um, but that's one of the things that I think we that you, you see over and over again, the need for folks to, you know, actually help and participate. We need people. You know, one of the things, and, and Philip can absolutely attest to this, we've seen this over the years, if you have concerns and you have, um, you know, questions about what happens in polling places, and, you know, every few years we have a, a protest and we say what happened in that area, more people is better. More people equals more eyes, more eyes watching things, and it's harder to, to for uh, some of the concerns that Connie mentioned on the phone to occur when you have people looking over the shoulder, so to speak. And, Philip, voting integrity is a big deal. I mean, it, it, it was a um, – I mean, it's always been a big deal. It seems like post-2020, it's an even bigger deal. Yeah, I think the anytime you can get people voting in person, you're in better shape. And, and that's really where South Carolina went was we gave them two weeks now to early vote. Uh, now, that changes the way elections are run because you've got to be ready two weeks earlier and, and advertising earlier. So it's a – it's a whole different voting scheme that's out there now, but we tried to decrease the amount of just mail-in ballots. Now you can still do that under certain circumstances, but the trade-off was that we could put our eyes on you, you know, and, and see your ID and make sure you are who you are. So I think we've improved it here in South Carolina. Obviously we need to take a huge gang of us and go up to Pennsylvania and see if we can straighten those guys out. But uh, other than that, you will hear something. There may be a tweak that comes about, but it won't be going in the wrong direction. But, but Jay, to your point, it's kind of the, it's the boring work. I mean, there's nothing glamorous about working at a poll, but it, it is so critically important to have competent, qualified, somewhat educated by education. I mean, they've been trained to understand how the workings of an election take place. Exactly. And, and, you know, there's not just, you know, there, there's always the concern like we've seen in other states. Philip just mentioned, and of course, we remember what happened in Georgia and some other states not that long ago. You know, we're always trying to watch out and, you know, avoid fraud. But there's another part of this reform aspect, too, that I think gets left behind, and that's 
you know, we had a lot of folks that, you know, we were at that basically we were putting in a position that they were committing fraud. You know, we had 17 reasons, but oh yeah, yeah, I won't be here. I'll be out of town. I'll just let me vote. And then the second part of that was we were creating a situation where with the mail, the more mail you have, the more people are going to mess that up inadvertently. Perhaps you forget to get a witness or you forget to sign where you're supposed to sign. And you had people, legitimate people trying to cast ballots that weren't being counted. Um, and we need to count those ballots. You know, I think Tim Scott has one of the, the best quotes, easier to vote, harder to cheat. So we're not trying to stop people from voting. We're just trying to make sure that the that um, the law isn't being broken and the votes are being counted appropriately. Is it is it fair to say, Philip, that we've addressed or not? Is it illegal for, I mean, we, we to me it was brilliant. I mean, I said on this microphone, what Zuckerberg did was brilliant. I mean, he basically paid election commissions in grants to make sure certain Democrat strongholds had much higher than average turnout. Should we, have we, abolish the use of private funds, not, not in campaigns or political action committees, but rather making donations directly into an election commission? I don't really know. Uh, I don't think we've changed the law on that, have we? We, we did. So... I remember we talked about it. It went through the Senate, too. Yeah. We put well, it in a proviso to stop it but, immediately, and then we passed the law right. the next year. But but up until then, nobody imagined. I mean, that, that was the brilliance in it. That was the genius in it. We always knew there were shenanigans going on in elections, but we didn't know that you could take X number of dollars and buy a bus in Charleston <laughs> to help get more Democrats to the poll. But, but you guys say that we have officially addressed that. That is illegal in South Carolina now. Correct. The and Democrat I, ground game is stronger. They, they, they they're better at it. Yeah, they stay better at it. They figure out a way to get more votes out of people. Uh, I don't know. Some, sometimes the same person, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think what we've got to do, like you said, participate in the election. You can, you can go be a poll worker. You can be a poll watcher. Uh, workers actually get paid. Watchers are something that Jay and I can help put you in a in a location that's needed. Don't just go to the one that you vote at. You may want to go to one that. You don't have a, you know, many friends that, but you can keep a better eye out on where our concerns may be. Uh, and then the second thing is make sure that, and this pertains only to Republicans, we don't want to go out and, and get more Democrat votes here. So you, we want to make sure that you call, make sure your kids and your friends and people who have moved in the neighborhood have changed their addresses. But you got to go quiz them first. Make sure they're conservative. Now we we don't want to stack them the wrong way. You know, I mean, and, and I say that jokingly, but I say that also. If you remember the last time the Trump election in Florence County was won by half of a percentage point by Trump, half. So if they're out registering people, guess what? They'll beat us next time. No question. Somebody's on the phone. Let's go there. Don in Mullins. Good morning, Don. You're on with the delegation. Good morning. Um, thank you all for the time. Uh, I would like to say, you know, you've got a year to pass these laws right now before this next election, which is possibly the most important in our lifetime. We know the Democrats are planning on cheating in every way possible. So you have plenty of time to do paper ballots. You'll pass a law against uh, anything else and give the, uh, the citizenry 30 days to abide by it or whatever before it goes into effect. So why do we need to give the voting people who are paid, why do we need to give them a, over a year's notice as to what, a, what we're going to change or do in, in order to stop fraud or at least mitigate some fraud? 
I don't understand why they need so much time. They're paid workers. Well, we, we've got a legislature. That, Thank you, Don. Appreciate that. No, I'm sorry. So we've got a legislature that's in that's got one more year of the session. And to get a bill to the House and the Senate in just one year, it, it, it takes a lot of coordination to, to get it through because there are Democrats that are going to try to stop it, hold it up. And the Senate is real good about doing that. Well, so, I mean, one monkey can literally stop the whole show in the Senate. And you've Not as much as changes. before. You got to get those changes in place so that they're effective this coming election, which is obviously November. But go back, you got to come back to the primaries. They have to be in effect then. So reality is, if we don't pass them in the first couple of months, it's going to be even hard to get going this year. And and Jay, explain that if you don't mind, how complicated it can get in the Senate, how one person can actually gum up the whole process. I've always looked at the House as kind of a manufacturing plant. I mean, y'all produce policy. It gets to the Senate and, I mean, it just stalls to a stop. I understand the caller's frustration, but but the way the South Carolina Senate works creates a lot of, uh, what, what am I talking inefficiencies in the system. So, in all fairness, the, it, the system can, at times, and I've seen it at times, work efficiently and fast, but that is rare and few and far between. There are certain realities here. Number one, uh, if you go back, the system in which the state is based on is the federal system, and the founders believed it to be best. To, any law we make is a is a um, abridgment of freedom against for someone. So they wanted it to be difficult to pass laws. So when you have a subcommittee, then the full committee, then get it to the House floor, then get it through there, then send it to the Senate, and guess what? It starts all over again to finally go to the governor, and he can say yes or no. And then if he says no, we have to override him. It it, it doesn't just happen overnight. The other reason why it shouldn't happen overnight is on two, at least two layers in there on either side, the House and the Senate, there's opportunity for citizens to come and actually speak on the legislation. Um, if that's one of my regrets, not regrets, but if disappointments at times, is we pass a lot of significant, serious pieces of legislation, and I'd love to see more people. Um, you know, how, we, Very few times do we have to say, folks, we have to cut off debate because we got to get to another meeting or a, most of the time we're – we're ending early some of these meetings unless they're very significant issues. Um, but as to the Senate specifically, one senator can put a minority report on a piece of legislation and slow that bill tremendously. So I don't think the caller, again, I think the caller comes from a tremendously good place in his question and concern on the issue, but it's not just dragging feet and it's not just trying to give paid employees, you know, extra or more time than necessary to digest the issue, even though that is important because we want them to understand it so they get it right so there aren't mistakes, so we don't have voter issues, but it's a little bit more complicated. The gears of government grind slowly. Let's let's take a break. I want to come back and give you plenty of time. Philip wants to jump in. Uh, Josh is giving me the break sign. we got to do that. Pay some bills back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim in Florence, good morning. You are on with the delegation. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, Real quick, don't we have paper ballots in this state? Yes. I, I keep hearing this thing about paper ballots, but every time I go vote, I enter a paper ballot, it marks the paper ballot the way I choose, and then I go enter it in a tabulation device. So um, I don't understand the concern about paper ballots. I'll say when it comes to South Carolina, is there room for improvement in South Carolina? Sure, but there's a lot less room for improvement in this state within the cards to our elections than other states. I mean, we just fundamentally get elections right in this state in the way that we handle them. And I, I think that's a lot of y'all's hard work. Um, y'all address, address the ballot harvesting. And I think we've seen the 
fruits of that in the gubernatorial race in 2022. I think we've seen the fruits of that in some of these local elections recently. Um, I mean, we we do a fundamentally great job of elections in this state. Um, we have um, go go look up stats from a, an election in in 2022 from Iowa. You can't look it up, but I can go look at stats from 2014 on the precinct level by the click of a couple of buttons. I mean, our transparency is excellent. And that's one thing y'all definitely get right. So I appreciate that. Um, but I got a question for Philip. Um, the deer population, now I know it seems like we have a lot more and I may be wrong, um, but if you could go into that um, as far as, uh, you know, seems like we're having more deer collisions. I'm seeing a lot more deer dead alongside the road. And um, if you could go in that, if we are having a problem and, and if we do need to address anything, thank you. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. I knew he set you up. <laughs> I mean, I knew all, all that lovey-dovey. He didn't mean any of that. He just set you up for the um, for the other question. So the legislature controls the, the regulations when it comes to private property, and the WMAs, which is our public land hunting, is controlled by DNR. Now, we might could, we could change that if we wanted to, being the legislature, of course. But I, I, uh, you know, I've deer hunted all my life, and, and what I see is there's pockets where the deer are, are overburdened. I mean, heck, you can go down to Hilton Head, and they're walking around eating your flowers out of your front yard during the daylight. Uh, you can, you can go to to places that uh, are are having difficulty. You know, we've got predators. Uh, the coyotes have gotten in this state and have taken down a lot of the fawn population. Um, there are places that go through the the deer depredation where they're paying people to take them out of the fields that are eating the crops up. So, uh, I don't know. I'll have to look at and see what the automobile numbers are. We certainly have more automobiles and more people. So there's a clash between population of deer and humans. Um, in the neighborhoods that I've developed, we we have some green space in there, and there's still deer that are walking around, you know, in, in very urban areas and, and thriving. But every night you hear the coyotes howling. You know they're hungry and they're going to, to eat it. But if you've got a specific area, uh, please call me. My number is 843 621 Nine 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 nine. And Jay, there's a reason it's called public policy, because the public participates. Um, they inquire about certain things. Walk me through hypothetically how something like that would evolve. Jim calls into a radio show, and and both of you kind of agree. Yeah, I mean, we, there, there is an issue here. I'll go back to, to alligators. We had a kind of a conversation a couple of weeks back about you know um, the number of human beings now in South Carolina coming in co- close contact and proximity to alligators uh, along the coast in particular, all this growth. I mean, they're building houses close to wetlands and where, where alligators inhabit naturally. Um, but, but and, and I've always felt that's the public policy part of this. I mean, the public begins the conversation. You guys kind of take it on as what we can and can't do. But how does hypothetically that, uh, that dynamic evolve? Well, right now I'm just worried about can I get Philip a bond hearing on Hilton Head Island tomorrow morning because he's apparently going to head to Hilton Head and go shoot all the deer down there, and those Yankees don't take too kindly. Yeah, uh, bow hunting, though. We, we won't shoot rifles. Okay, just bow hunting. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure those folks from Ohio, Michigan, living on Hilton Head will, will love you and your bow hunter uh, coming down there. No, I, I think it works in one way like like you just saw. You know, Philip, um, he, he knows a lot about this stuff, so he's a, he's a resource in himself. 
Um, that's one of the things that happens a lot when you have a part-time legislature like we do. If I get a call and I don't know something about it and it's one of my friend's area of expertise, you know, good, another good example is the budget. Philip is very involved in the budget, and I've said here many times, Philip's the kind of guy you want looking at that budget because he knows more about signing the front of the check than the back of the check and to be, you know, judicious with how the money's spent. But so, so that's one of the areas of it. You know, you go to someone you know and trust within the body and say, hey, tell, tell me what's going on with this particular issue and, and what we need to do. The next thing is you go to the, the, the other resources, DNR in this particular case. Um, they're always helpful to try and um, figure out, hey, the, yes, we are struggling in this particular area, and these are some of the things we're trying to do to address the issue. Uh, and sometimes that or many times that turns into potential legislation that we have to address the issue. So there are a lot of different ways to skin the cat. Let's, um, it's, it's a minute early, but I want to take a break and come back because we had something um, happen this week in Columbia that is, um, I, I don't want to say controversial. And what Jim called, I expected to call to, to go there. But um, the Judicial Merit Screening Committee has been accused of being the Judicial Merit Selecting Committee. And, and I think we've got to, um, we've got to give credit where credit's due. J- Jay and I have agreed, Philip and I, Mike and I, Jim and I, we've agreed there's no perfect way to elect judges, but something happened this week that I think it, it, it confirms to me that, that every deal's not an inside deal, that there's some objectivity and seriousness given to something that a lot of people don't believe is. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. We've argued on this show. We've made... We've had discussions. We've had uh, debates about how best to pick a judge. Um, I've decided there ain't no good way, uh, but we can find the best of the bad ways. Um, but but a lot of people believe the fix is in every single time, and I just don't buy that. I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not crazy about the way we do it, but I'm not going to allow people to say the fix is in because the fix is not in. I, once again, I don't like the way we do it, but but it's the best we have found thus far. And Jay, you were in the middle of that for the last two or three weeks, and and I, you know, and I know you as a good friend, and I know the burden. Um, it would be a lot easier and sexier to be on the state infrastructure bank, but but having to pick judges and their livelihoods, and this guy yes, and and this guy no. Um, I mean, it gets very complicated. Well, it's a it's a long process. If someone wants to be a judge, you know, I think there's a little bit of a misconception about how that occurs. You know, it, it is a very long drawn out you have to be serious about wanting to become a judge because it's it is it takes time and effort just to do the application to go through the citizens committee that meets and and screens you first and then after you get through the citizens committee you go before the lawyers on the bar committee and then once you get through that then you come to columbia and go before the judicial merit folks that i've served on now for a few years um and and been in columbia three of the last four weeks going through those hearings uh day after day after day uh, and, and, you know, look, it's a, it's a burdensome process for these folks. I think sometimes, and, and it should be burdensome, number one, but also I think we do get some quality folks that don't want to do it because it is such a burdensome process. And then it, you make, you have difficult decisions. You have people that are, um, that are, are qualified and you have some people that are not qualified and, you know, telling them they're not qualified, especially when they have served as a judge previously can be, uh, can be a, a you know, a tall hill to climb, but it's one that the people of South Carolina deserve. Um, to see the right thing happen. And then the story doesn't end there. Just because the JMSC meets and screens, then it still goes to the, the, the folks that have now screened out and been qualified and nominated. They go on to the, the General Assembly to be elected. So there's still more, another step in the story. 
And, and Philip, it frustrates a lot of people in the General Assembly when the public says it's just a rubber stamp. I mean, that's all it is. And, and, and you know that not to be the case. Yeah, I think the thing that bothers them the most is, uh, you know, when somebody gets out. In the old days, you could be in the legislature and get elected and into to be a judge. And I think that bothered them the most. And we changed that. You got to be out, what, about two years now? One year? One, one year. One full year. And uh, so, you know, I think they they fuss about that probably the loudest that people do. But, you know, this time I, I'll give it to them. I mean, and I don't know specifics, but, but they took a judge and said he wasn't qualified, who already was qualified. So whatever that judge did, uh, we've got some method of going back, you know, like Supreme Court every 10 years. I think the other circuit court judges and all every six years. So you've got a system that can remove one if, if they don't find the behavior or the attitude You're correct. So it, there's no perfect way, but when you occasionally take one out, it sends a message to all the rest of the judges. Accountability. Yeah. I mean, if, you do, if you're a good judge, you don't have anything to worry about. If there's some controversy in, in, in some of the decisions you've made, these guys have to evaluate and make a and make a hard call. Well, and it's also as you said, Ken, too. You know, and it, I think back to the call we had earlier this morning about elections, and my answer there is, you know, we always need to be looking: can we improve? Can we do better? Um, and and that's going on right now with how we do, uh, how we select judges. You know, Speaker Smith was not, um, you know, he heard the the folks saying we need to look at this, formed a, a committee, an ad hoc committee out of the House that has met twice, is going to meet again on, I think, December the 13th, has heard testimony from solicitors and folks from um, other states to hear how other places do it so that we can, you know, really give a hard look at do we do it, as you said, the best of all the bad ways? Because I, I have said before, and I think I, I still believe wholeheartedly, you know, we're dealing with justice and justice, who gets it? You know, hopefully you all, we all get it, but we're at, it's in the hands of man. But how we dispense justice is probably the hardest thing we do. Well, let's go back to you real quick. We're in early the days, the first day of December. That means next month you guys will go into, into session. What, what, what is in store for the General Assembly when you get to work in, uh, in January? What is well, something you find the priority? Well, obviously, I, I've got to deal straight with the budget because we begin the budget in the House. So, we get back. That's number one priority. We we try to get out of, of session early enough to get us in to the meetings so we can have the committee meetings with all the agencies who come and talk to us about their needs. So that's going to be number one. And I'm sure judiciary has got several things lined up in their calendar. Um, but I'll tell you, there won't be many bills introduced this year that make it through the whole process. There's a ton of bills still sitting in the Senate. And, uh, and I'm sure there's some Senate bills sitting in the House right now. But uh, a lot of it will be cleaning up what we passed in one body or the other and dealing with that this year some. And, and, Jay, that's always the case. When you get back for a new year, you try to get some things through the Senate that you got through the House last year. That, that's exactly right. You know, on both sides of, of the building, there are bills sitting in committee, you know, waiting to be heard that we put off from last year saying – look, you know, we got to get these bills out of the House so that this, when the Senate comes back next year, they'll have the time to take up these issues. And the same is absolutely true. I looked at the um, the file just last week, and uh, Judiciary has a bunch of stuff sitting there that came over from the Senate that we now have to, as I said earlier, we need to hold subcommittee hearings and allow the public to come take another bite of that apple and telling us what are their concerns, their issues, 
with those pieces of legislation. And then we have to get it to the full committee. And then we have to, if it passes through there, get it to the house for, as we saw last year, you know, when a bill gets to the floor, it can be stuck there for days and weeks sometimes. And when it finally comes up for debate, sometimes we debate it for minutes. Sometimes we debate it for hours and days. So there's, you know, just because a bill is is making progress nicely doesn't mean it's going to get over the finish line. Philip, you mentioned the budget. Uh, when will you and have you already got like numbers or projections from BEA? I mean, the BEA Board of Economic Advisors, they kind of sort of tell us what the projected revenue looks like next year. A lot of people believe the economy could hit some um hit some headwinds. And I mean, what what you can share, what you can't share. Uh, what what do you think the budget washes out or flushes out next year? So the last two years were enormous. We just had money flushed from everywhere. This year it pulled back some, but we still have $600 million in recurring dollars, which is things that you could expect to fund into the future like every year. The non-recurring dollars are $900 million, and that's, thing, that's one-time money. So you could do that for a specific project, but you can't go hire employees or anything like that. on it. So that's actually a very normal type of a, of a budget year. That's a good budget year. You can't compare them to the last two because those were ridiculous. Uh, but we did a lot of great things around Florence, and, and still a lot coming from that money that was there. Uh, even though the feds didn't have some of it to give to us, they printed it, threw it up in the air, and it landed in laps. How do you guys decide as a delegation what the priorities are? I mean, Jay doesn't get to call all the shots. Philip doesn't get to call all the shots. Mike doesn't. Roger Kirby doesn't. Uh, you know, who, what, I mean, how do you guys come to some compromise on what the priorities of your area should be? Some things are easier to agree on, uh, to agree on than others. You know, when we have, you know, uh, money for infrastructure, I, I have found that most of the time there's a lot of nodding heads saying that's something that's well, um, that's money well spent for From the, the left and the right. Correct. That's money well spent for the PD for Florence um, so that we can, you know, improve our area. Education can be like that too, but sometimes it gets a little more, you know, different feelings, different, um, you know, per perspectives, Democrat versus Republican. There can be differences of opinion on what are the priorities. And, and Philip, I mean, you, you're, you're the delegation chair. Um, what, what responsibility do you have in trying to make sure everybody's opinions are considered? Well, I've got to have requests for money in fairly early because that budget starts getting, uh, taken up fairly quickly. It gets, it gets spoken for, as yeah, we like to say. That's right. And and so I don't expect a lot of extra money this year to go back towards the delegation. Or There's nothing. They don't divide it up and say, sure. hey, you're going to get X and, and everybody gets a percentage of, of something. It ends up being I go in and fight and get things in the budget that our delegation all collectively talk about and, and work out together. And then we help each other. We stick together to try to keep it through the whole process all the way until the end. Jay, does it get territorial? Last question. Does it get like, uh, hey, let's, um, the, the, the guys from Ori and Georgetown County are trying to get X, and they're kind of sort of our neighbors, so let's go get them on our team, and we'll support what it is. I mean, it's politics. I mean, it, it is what it is. 100% it gets <laughs> territorial. Um, you know, you start looking over there and saying, those guys in the upstate sure have gotten a lot for, you know, in the – Charleston sure does seem to get, you know, a lot. Um, and so you do, you know, there's only, you know, go back to one of the great things about how we budget is we don't spend more than we take in. We're not like the, the federal government that it's a blank check and let's print some more money. So it's a finite number there. And we, we 
take seriously uh, the the need to spend that money as well as we possibly can. Uh, so it absolutely becomes a competitive arrangement, so to speak, to where you know we're trying to bring resources and inf- infrastructure money and things like that to this region of the state. One thing I found, and we'll take our break, Josh, one thing I found in my time in Columbia, Greenville would be more likely to be opposed to Charleston, and Charleston would be more likely to be opposed to Greenville, and the poor old PD over here, that's when you kind of just all shucks. You know, maybe we can get a little bit of this of Greenville. I mean, Jay's right. I mean, it's, it's, it gets extremely territorial uh, when you start allocating funds. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. A lot of news this week about EVs. And you got to be careful about what's spin and who's saying this and who's saying that. And this editorial means one thing and that editorial means um, something else. The truth is that people are not as enamored with electric vehicles as some of the politicians said they would be. And now about 3,000 auto dealers are signing letters opposing um, Biden's electric vehicle mandate. Uh, Fox News Radio's Jeff Manasso is in Chicago. Jeff, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Good to be with you as always. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is consumers talking. This is, you know, well, well the, the argument can still be made, you know, for or against EVs. These, this is consumers saying we don't want them. Uh, so this is over 3,000 dealers in all 50 states. These dealers collectively sell every major car brand out there. And they're sending this open letter to President Biden saying, look, you, you have to slow down because these things are piling up uh, on our back lots. We, we um and, and, and you know people aren't buying them you know those who, who who've wanted an, an ev generally already have one and and more people are buying gas combustion cars because they're tried and true and and you know consumers know what that technology is about while evs and that technology is still pretty much in its infancy um, and, and so demand is not keeping up with, with the, the large influx of EVs arriving on, on dealer lots. And dealers for months have been begging automakers as well, stop sending them because we, we're full. I mean, we're, we're not selling the ones that we have. Um, so there's a lack of enthusiasm. Uh, and, you know, even, even these, the, I mean, these un, unsold EVs are surging even with deep price cuts. And in some cases, 0% financing, you know, man, manufacturer and government incentives. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, this is, this is President Biden's baby. This is his, this is his what, what he probably thinks is going to be his legacy, his approach to you know, green energy and things like that. So I doubt uh, there will be any movement on it. Um, but the stats are what the stats are, and that's gas-powered cars represented about 93% of all car sales uh, in the U.S. In, in 2022. And, you know, EVs still remain more expensive, less efficient than alternatives. Uh, and in addition, experts have warned that switching too quickly to EVs may present a national security risk, given that China is the country that produces 75% of all lithium-ion batteries, which is a key component of EVs worldwide, uh, and for which we will be dependent uh, on China at, at the rate that the federal government wants to mandate of of fifty percent, uh, you know, cars sold in the U.S. be all EVs by twenty thirty. Jeff, there is no. I mean, you kind of answered the question. In my political life, when I made a misstep, I figured out a way to correct that misstep. There seems to be no inkling uh, from the Biden administration that they're changing their mind. I mean, they're married to this EV mandate. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it appears that – I'm not sure. We've, we've tried to reach out. Um, you know, perhaps Kate, you know, Karine Jean-Pierre will maybe talk to us, uh, ask, answer a question to the White House today about this. But she'll say, look, you know, the president's been very clear about his initiatives, uh, and, and this is where we're going. Uh, you know, that's, that's what I think most of us would, would expect. But, you know, dealers say, look, this is just unrealistic. They, they say the administration just needs to allow more time for battery technology to advance, to make EVs more affordable, and to develop domestic sources for minerals to make batteries. Of course, the EPA would probably have a problem with that. Uh, and, and, you know, for charging infrastructure to be built and, and to be proved reliable, because I mean, that is one of the biggest issues. And, and it's why, you know, because consumers have been so disappointed about the in- infrastructure that automakers now, Ford, GM, and others, they're actually taking money away from, from their EV projects and they're dumping it back into hybrids because they understand now what consumers want. Uh, consumers want reliability. Uh, and, and right now, reliability uh, comes with a gas, you know, a gasoline pump. Yep. Well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great weekend, sir. You too. Guy always does a good job of kind of cutting to the chase and getting to the, I, I'm convinced that Manasso is a journalist waiting on a radio show. <laughs> you you hear him guarded, you know, he's like, ah, I better not say this. And he doesn't say it, but you hear him say it. And just and, the inflection and sometimes, in his yeah, voice. You get inflection or a, a, an appropriate sigh at yeah, the well, right the time. Sigh, the, the, the noticeable sigh yeah. is one of these things. It's like, um, <laughs> is there any chance they change their mind? <sighs> I mean, that that's me saying hell no right. i mean you know they're married to this and they're not changing their mind in any way shape or form uh before low got out of there rev kind of rev chuckles at me in the oh, way i, I and the way i operate is what he accuses me of well be- before we left though the last thing and just in the last few minutes before this segment ended you, you were asking philip his thoughts on nil which is obviously a big discussion especially for gamecocks right now okay well tigers as well i know i know but you know with with the portal activity in the last uh, day or so i'm just worried about gamecocks at this point but jason will be here to talk about it. the juice Clemson. is loose right, right literally and figuratively <laughs> but but the, the conversation i mean you jumped into working it mode as philip walked out because you think there's some some legislative clarity that needs to be made to kind of help that th- there is no doubt I mean, Missouri did what Missouri, Missouri had a great year because they were very proactive in some of the NIL situations. What, what they needs found. to be fixed? Though? What, what, can, mean, what can the South Carolina what, legislature do to help that help what, us on the playing field? The NCAA. So well, I, let, let's go all the way back. I mean, Jason Priester, allclemsontigers.com. Congratulations, sir, on the uh, on the win. Oh. Being the less ugly team that night, Jason and I text with one another, <laughs> and he agreed it was kind of an ugly night. I mean, it's just an ugly affair. Uh, neither team looked like uh, you wanted your team to look, but Clemson endured, and, and I've said it a hundred times, and, and I'll say it again. I've never left Williams-Brice with one half of a win. I've never left with one half of a loss. It was hard to watch. Well, it was. I mean, it, it, and, it, you know, and it a little bit discouraging. I mean, it's just like, wow. I mean, okay. Gamecock fans are used to mediocrity. And and I, and I said on the show, Jason, when when, when I, as a Gamecock fan, when Clemson came to town and had Deshaun Watson or Trevor Lawrence, you know, as quarterback – and you lost, you're like, hey, lost one of the best teams in the country. But when you when you feel like, wow, we had to make that mistake or another mistake, but but in all honesty, when you were 10 as a Gamecock, when you're 9 down, you felt 900 down. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, you didn't see any opportunity unless a tap pass, you know, some freaky play that happened. But, um, but, but and, and I've watched a lot of football, as you have, other than the Clemson defensive front, 
there was not a lot else to get real excited about. I mean, the Clemson defensive front dominated the Gamecock offensive line. That was a concern I had. I mean, I made that known. I got a big concern about that happening, and it did. And Spencer Rattler ran for his life all Saturday night. I would say the entire defense. I mean, the, the, the linebackers have been pretty good this year. That secondary has been lights out the, over the past month. And, and we're talking about a couple of freshmen, too, that have, have been big contributors. Y'all, you, you saw Khalil Barnes. What, I mean, they, they, they had him on the get there a few times, and, and he was able to stick to him pretty good. Um, they, they've got some dudes on the back end of that defense, and, and a lot of them are young. Shelton Lewis, Avion, Ter- Ter- Avion Terrell. Khalil Barnes, all freshmen, um, they kind of started taking over a lot of the play time, particularly Barnes and Terrell over the back half of the season. We've already seen one of the older defensive backs hit the portal late last night, which I was kind of expecting because I haven't hardly seen him over the back half of this or the back quarter of the season, so to speak. But I think you're about to see a lot of turnover on that Clemson roster, but especially on that offense. It was ugly. And I know they were missing a couple of offensive linemen and not the same starting receivers from the beginning of the season. But those are the same receivers you've been playing with most of the second half of the season outside of one who hasn't contributed a whole lot to begin with, who was a very highly touted guy. Um, Talking about Bo Collins, who also hit the portal. Um, so I think we're fixing to see some turnover on the offensive side of the ball. I think Dabo Sweeney thought bringing in Garrett Riley was going to kind of cure what ailed them on that side. He has found out that is not the case. He talked about they needed to have some pruning take place inside of that program. I think it was after the Miami loss, maybe. And we're starting to see that this week, and I don't think we're done. I think you're going to see some names you were not expecting, you know, that, that hit the portal here over the next few days. And then talking about the portal, and Rev was talking about the NIL, to me, that's the biggest story in college football today. I mean, I don't think you, 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 don't, you don't know whether to yin or yang. You don't know whether to turn left or turn right. You don't know whether to say yes or no. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not fun, but it's, it's interesting to watch the game that I grew up change right before my very eyes, not in a little way, but in a major and profound way. And Rev jokes around the way I operate. Um, I just believe that the state general assembly can create clarity with, with a piece of legislation. I'm more than willing to help them uh, draft the legislation that treats Clemson, Carolina, and coastal to some degree. Coastal will be a part of this, but it'll be majority of Gamecocks and Tigers and in, in, in Columbia. I mean, I can tell you this, you got, you got legislators that go to Gamecock games. You got legislators that go to Clemson games, but there, there's going to be some unison here because Missouri basically said to the NCAA, you don't get to tell us what we can do and can't do. And Missouri took off like a rocket ship. I mean, they, they created a very advantageous scenario for their NIL and transfer portal. And, and you, Rev, you asked me what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. It, if I were king of the world, if I were emperor of Gamecock Tiger Nation, I'm not. And that's an impossible job. You can be one of one, but you certainly couldn't be uh, one of the other. But, but I, would, I would ask the General Assembly to allow each university to allocate X number of dollars, whatever they choose, toward NIL, and that usurps the authority of a sanctioning body like the NCAA. I would also offer that an, a kid, a high school kid, that stays in the state of South Carolina is able to participate in the rewards of NIL if he commits to an in-state school. That, I mean, that's what Missouri did. Missouri allows, if, if, if a kid, if a five-star wide receiver in the state of Missouri commits to Oklahoma, 
He's got to wait until he goes to Oklahoma to enjoy the benefit of the NIL. If he commits to Missouri, he can enjoy the benefit immediately. That's an incentive for kids to stay in the state. And and I think Dabo and Shane would both agree. Yeah, I mean, I'd be for, you know, incentivizing these kids to stay in the state. But but the problem is, and I want to get Jason's take on this, each university has tremendous fans going to games and then supporting financially your program. But donor fatigue is real. And I've got Clemson buddies of mine who will tell me, look, I've got some money, but I'm tired of giving it. I mean, I'm, I'm just giving it. I got a lot of Gamecock buddies of mine. I want to win. I want to do what it takes. But, I mean, th- th- there are a lot of other things I can do with my money. And I think allowing the universities to basically go to the fan and say, okay, you gave us all this money to build the upper decks. You gave us all this money to renovate our, our basketball arenas and to build all these Olympic sport venues, but we need a little more. We need more to pay the players. I just don't think that is the long-term solution. I think bringing the NIL more in um, integrated fashion to the to the program is going to be the answer, and the General Assembly has to allow that. I mean, the, the state lawmakers can say, okay, uh, IPTAs, what, what is the uh, the biggest collective in Clemson? They have rebranded. There is one now. They kind of put them all under one umbrella, integrated it with IPTA. It is called the 110 Society. Correct. Okay, the 110 Society and Garnet Trust can now be extensions of the Gamecock and Tiger athletic programs. That's the answer. And if the university gets X number of dollars from TV revenue or donations or whatever, ticket uh, sales, they can they can allocate whatever they choose to allocate toward NIL. I mean, that's what needs to happen. And um, and I think Jason and I have talked off the air. There ain't no way we get in a pissing contest with Texas, Texas A&M. I mean, we lose that every day. Um, and I, here we go. You ready? Up through the ground come a bubbling crude. Um, I mean, that's just the, that's just the way it is. That helps. If the Gamecocks and Tigers believe that they can outbid Texas and Texas A&M for five-star high school football players or transfer portal targets, they're going to get their feelings hurt. But I think there are things the General Assembly can do to create a level playing field because you got to be fair to the one and the other. I can tell you this. There's enough Tigers in, in Columbia to stop the Gamecocks from getting their way. There are enough Gamecocks in Columbia to stop the Tigers from getting from getting their way. But I got to believe that there are enough Gamecock and Tiger legislators to, to believe that this is in the best interest of both programs. Jason, you say what to that? I like that idea because I, I absolutely believe donor fatigue is real. You've already got the booster clubs that have been, you know, begging for all this money for all these years. And you see something tangible that you're getting out of those donations, whether it be parking or tickets or, you know, facilities or whatever. And now they're coming back to you, hand out again, hey, we need this for this player, that player, whatever. And there's no tangible value in that. You don't see where your money's going outside of, you know, going to the games and watching the players play, obviously. But there's there's no actual return on your investment, so to speak. Nothing tangible. Um and Clemson's got such a small I'm speaking from a Clemson's perspective. They got such a small alumni base and I think their NIL is pretty well funded. But you got to be very careful in how you spend it because if you deplete those funds, it's going to take a long time to replenish them depending on, you know, your donor pool and where that money's coming from. So, yeah, I, I absolutely – I would love that idea if the universities could kind of donate a percentage of TV revenue to, to NIL. And that would take some of the burden off of the donors who are already giving so much when it comes just to what they do with the booster clubs. 
Well, and, and right now that's against NCAA rules, right? It, yeah, I mean, when you look at and the that's stip- the issue. So you could say, all right, hey, your your rule on this doesn't stand in South because Carolina because the NCAA is a sanctioning body. Right. They're a governing. They're, they're not, not lawmakers, lawmakers. Right. And the and the, the the authority. I mean, this is the this is the Missouri case. The the, the Missouri General Assembly basically said, you know, are, are we are we basically spitting in the NCAA's face? And the Missouri, you know, the the the, the administrators at the Missouri said. Yeah, and that's what we intend to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the, the NCAA brought all this on. I mean, let, let's take a break. I want to come back, and Jason and I will walk through. I mean, I've read. I'm weird. I know I am. I've read the Austin case and the um, the Gorsuch opinion. And and the the, the, the basic, what, what the courts said was you can't run uh, college football like the Russians run their economy or the Chinese run their economy. I mean, it's the Sherman Act and monopolies. And, and I mean, if, if we're not careful, guys, we're going to lose this game. I'm, I'm, we're going to lose this game, and it's going to be – I mean, we've already kind of lost the amateurism of the game, but we're going to – it's going to turn into something that people go, well, yeah, you know, you have it. I'm out. Take a break. Back in a few. I would call this decompression hour, but I get more worked up about this than I do the presidency. <laughs> you, you I get more um, excited and exhausted and, you know, called in the moment of what – Jason Priest or allclemsontigers.com is with us. Jason – a part of your job, not all of your job, but part of your job is to keep up with Clemson recruiting. And you and I share text at times about I'm hearing this about this kid, hearing that about about this player. You know, what do you think the Gamecocks stand? What do you think the Tigers stand? What about the Bulldogs and LSU and, and some of these other teams? But now you've got the transfer portal. And, I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the wild, wild west come Monday. Yeah, I've not been – I just told you, I've not been able to leave my laptop for two days. And, and I put it down last night. I thought I was safe, you know, after about 9 o'clock. Sure enough, 1030, here comes another one, you know, and I'm writing something else up. So it is nonstop. Recruiting's got to where it's been nonstop for Clemson for a while now. You know, there's very little time off. There's a lot of stuff in, in January and February. And then you get visits in the spring, and now Clemson does big official visits in the summer. So it kind of never stops. But this transfer portal thing's added a whole different element um, what usually has been just a week of covering ACC championship, Clemson's not even there this this year, and I'm more busy now than I ever have been this week leading into the championship games. Is it too crazy? I mean, don't you agree that something – I mean, I, I, and I would encourage – if you're a college football fan, read the Austin case and the Gorsuch opinion. I mean, I hate to say this, but the NCAA got what they asked for. And the NCAA is whom? It's comprised of the member institutions. I mean, that they were running a scam, that they were that they were generating enormous amounts of money, and the kids that were helping generate those enormous amounts of money were not being fairly taken care of. Now we can say the value of a scholarship, and I get all that. I mean, I understand all that. But the next thing you you know, there's a football program in America paying a coach seventy somebody million dollars to go home. Yeah. It- you know, 20 years ago, you could say, hey, the value of a scholarship, you know, before these TV deals blew up, you know, maybe you can make that argument. But when, when you're paying coaches this much money, the way we're seeing some of these coaches getting paid, Dabo Sweeney being one of them, you know, and, and the players are getting absolutely nothing. Something's broken. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. They've kind of asked for it. This has been coming for a long time. But it is absolutely the wild, wild west. Um <laughs> it's crazier than NFL free agency. You know, you get the one free transfer. You don't even have to be graduated. You can just bowl it up anytime you want to. And if it's a coaching change, that gives you another free one. So, I mean, it's, it's never ending. I don't know what the answer to kind of fix it is. Um, 
They got to do something. But there's got to be something. I mean, would you agree to this? I mean, the NFL understands that parody is entertainment. Uh, you know, entertainment is intriguing. Um, they let the worst team draft first and the best team draft last. I mean, that's kind of socialization of football. Um, but they get it. They understand it. Salary caps. I mean, they don't let the New York Jets, because of the size of the media market, buy all the good players. They've got a salary. Wouldn't you agree that, okay, the pendulum was way over here. The player had no leverage. Now the, the pendulum is just, I mean, somebody cut the chain, and they've got more leverage. I mean, the college football players today have a better deal than NFL players. They got all the oh, I, mean, I mean, there's no inhibitions. I mean, no it's, contracts. I well, mean, I mean, think, think of Juice Wells, Rev. Mine and your least favorite Gamecock today. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about, you know, I'm coming back. We love him. No, I'm not. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm coming back, but not here. You know, I'm waiting on somebody to give me more money than Carolina agreed mm-hmm. to, to give me. So they've got it better right now than, than pro football players do. But don't you agree that at some point in time, sanity restores we're not going back where we were. Okay. You know that. I know that. But there's got they've got to adopt some of the models of the NFL salary caps, um, slot fees, and all these other sorts of things. Oh, yeah. I think this is going to blow up, man, pretty quick. It's not sustainable what we're doing right now. But, yeah, I think we're going to head to something more, you know, more professionalized where guys are getting paid salaries. There's players, unions, and some kind of caps. Or I, I don't know the specifics, but I, I know what we're doing right now. It's not very sustainable, and yeah, I do think it needs to head that way, more professionalized. There's just too much money involved, and and to say these kids don't deserve and haven't earned a piece of that pie is insane. So, so what? Here's a concern I have, and I want to get your take. I mean, I, I got I look at it through garnet glasses. My concern is you're doing permanent damage to a game that fans are going to be so disenchanted with this craziness that's going on, they're not going to read the Austin case. They're not weird like me. They just know the game they grew up loving and, and attending at Clemson or South Carolina. It's just not what it once was. Um, kid comes to Carolina scholarship. Next year, Clemson offers him a little better deal. He's gone and wearing Clemson orange. And, uh, I mean, he was your fan favorite. Now he's their fan and vice versa. could be. But is there is there is there a fear we should all have about permanently damaging the game because the pendulum swung so far to one side i think it's already been damaged if you are probably an older guy who just loves the amateur version of what we've gotten because that's never coming back like you said earlier and i know a lot of people older mostly older people who have been you know kind of turned off by what we're seeing right now and i get it but i'm reluctant to change myself but change is coming change is inevitable you either jump on board or get left behind and yeah, you're probably going to turn some people off and, and lose some fans, but but I don't think it's going to hurt that bad. Um, I, I think the I think I think college football will be all right. It's just going to be different, way different, very, very different. Jason left out one word: the older fan, older, richer fans. I mean, that, that that's the concern. I mean, I, I know most universities have a concern about the majority of big gifts given to college football programs are given to people who are, you know, lived a little longer. I mean, they've made some money. They've gotten their their lives kind of situated. They've, they've got, you know, they've done well in business. I mean, I, I'm not saying no young person gives big amounts because they do at times, but the majority of giving is done, big giving is done by the older the older fans. And I know at Carolina Clemson, because I've heard both, um, they're having a hard time convincing the older, wealthier fans that this is a wise, a wise investment. I want to do something if you don't mind. I want to get your take on this. I'm tired of talking about game costs and Tigers. I'm tired of talking about NIL. There's football to be played. Begins tonight. 
uh, Pac-12 championship, Oregon at Washington. Have you kept up with either of those teams? And then what words of wisdom do you have about that game? Um, A little bit. I think that Washington team's very good, man. I, I'm a big Bo Penix fan. To me, I usually go with the team that's got the better quarterback, giving me the Huskies. Oklahoma State and Texas. This one is a little bit more cloudy for me. Say, I haven't watched any Oklahoma State all season. I haven't watched Texas since they beat Alabama. Um, I'm just not free to watch a lot of college football sure. where I used to be unless I go back and watch it during the week. And I haven't done that a lot this year, to be quite honest. But um, give me Texas. But Gundy, I mean, in some way, he just keeps winning. I know, and very quiet. Yeah, he's just a different kind of guy. Uh, but every time he turns around, Oklahoma State's at a big football game. Yeah, it would be the most Texas thing ever to lose this weekend. And it just, would. I mean, that, that's what they do. And I want to circle back to Texas in a couple of minutes. Louisville, Florida State, that's up your alley. You know, Florida State's entire season, you know, the complexion of that thing changed when Jordan Travis went down. And they're, they're still big favorites this week. Um, I don't know, though. I, I got a feeling Louisville's going to throw a wrench into their season this weekend. Mm, you predict the upset. I, I'm leaning that way. And yeah. that game's in Charlotte? Yeah, in Charlotte. I'm leaning that way. I, I just don't like the fact that, that they don't have their, their leader, Jordan Travis. I mean, there, there's a big step down. I know they got some dudes on the outside. They got a good running back, Trey Benson. But I don't know. There's something about Jeff Braun and that Louisville team, man. He has done remarkable things there in one year. Michigan, Iowa. Oh, man, Michigan all the way. That, that game Michigan will, uh, and that, Michigan's finally going to play a game that goes over. Yeah, there, there you go. That game will look like, I mean, the trouble's not in your set. It's not on slow motion. I mean, that's just Big Ten football in December. I mean, I, that's the way. I saw a crazy stat about Iowa, and I wish I could remember it specifically, but I think, like, they, they've played, like, three or four games this year where they set the record for the under, and every time they went under, <laughs> and did it again last weekend. <laughs> the under on Nebraska-Iowa was 25. Uh, and they 25, went under, right? And it went under. Yeah. I mean, it was 13-10 to 10 final score. Somebody texted me during that game. It's like 0-0 forever. Somebody texted me, you know, this thing may end in the tie. I said, no, somebody hit a solo home run here, you know, in a few <laughs> minutes or a two-run home run and win the game. All right, um, Georgia and Alabama. That's the one right there, isn't it? Um, you know, this Georgia team, it, I, I know they're not quite what they were last year, year before last, but, man, they are loaded still. Um, Got a bunch of dudes, as you say. A <laughs> bunch of dudes. And Alabama, you know, for all intents and purposes, they probably should have lost last week. I mean, they're fortunate they did not lose up there on the plains last week. Uh, give me Georgia, man. I think Georgia's about the three-peat. I think Georgia I think Georgia by two scores. Yeah, I think – give me Georgia. I think Georgia's fixing the three-peat and start lapping everybody. That kind of looks that way. Um, and they're in our neighborhood. I think you guys <laughs> open with Georgia next year. Yes. Yeah, in, uh, in, in Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, um, it'd be 80-20 dogs fans. <laughs> nah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, well, you buy some fans. Buying players, you buy some fans. <laughs> I want to work through this scenario with you. Get your take here. Got in a big argument with a couple of um, Gamecock buddies of mine about Florida State. They're arguing that if Alabama beats Georgia and Florida State beats Louisville, Florida State still gets leapfrogged by either Texas or Alabama if both win their championship games because of what you said the fact that they don't have their starting court. There's no way you leave out a Power 5 undefeated team. I don't think Florida State's getting left out if they win this There's weekend. no way, Jason. No, no, no undefeated ACC Power 5 champion has ever been left out. No, no Power 5 champion, period, that's been undefeated has ever gotten left out. No one-loss ACC champion has ever been left out. 
I don't think Florida State's getting leapfrogged by a Texas one loss Texas team, one loss Bama team. Not that I think again that Bama's beating Georgia, but I don't see that happening. And I get it. I get the Jordan Travis argument, but how many times have they told us that that's not supposed to matter, right? It's not supposed to matter. Um, we'll see if they put their money where or put their mouth where the money is this weekend. If that all that stuff comes to fruition. Uh, speaking of putting your money where your mouth is, you ready? If Jason Priest had a million dollars and he had to bet that million on Florida State or Texas, who does he bet on? Uh, getting into the playoffs? No, no, in the game. I mean, I, I'm agreeing with you oh, 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 that Florida State deserves to be in the 14 playoff. But let's say Texas wins. Let's say Bama upsets Georgia. You've got Bama, Texas, and FSU as the three teams we could argue about, right? I mean, if I had a Longhorn, I'd argue for Texas. If I had a um, if I had a Roll Tide shirt, I'd argue. But but I still go back to the undefeated Power Five champion. You can't exclude them. My point's not that. My point is, who do you believe is the better team? Uh, without Jordan Travis, Texas. They're the third best team in that list, aren't they? Yeah, I believe you might be right. Yes, they. I think they are. They and they beat Alabama earlier this season. I mean, they they. They've done what they needed to do outside of the one loss. I mean, they, you know, but it's hard to keep 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old kids focused and up every single week. I, I've seen it myself personally the last few years. It, it's hard to do it much harder than I'd ever thought before I started doing this for a living. Um, kudos to coaches when they are able to do it, especially Kirby Smart because he's been doing it for a few years now. But it, it, it's difficult to do that. And, but outside of the one hiccup, they've done what they needed to do. Last question, Clemson-related. Um, you come to Williams-Brice, you win an ugly football game. What is the what is the sense of Clemson fans right now relating to their football team? Uh, they wanted to see Dabo Sweeney make some changes inside that program. The, the, the four-game winning streak in November did nothing to quell the concerns. And, and I think most were relieved that he did that yesterday. You know, he made an announcement. He making a couple staff changes, one being on that offensive line, which has been a big problem this year, not only on the field, but, man, recruiting's been bad. Um, I think some are not going to be happy that he did not do something with the wide receiver coach, but I didn't think he was going to. Um, so it's kind of mixed that they're, they're, they are anxiously or anxious and nervous at the same time to see what Clemson's able to do in the portal because they know this is the year Clemson's going to make a move. And they want to see how far he dips his toe in, how deep he gets involved. Um, I'm kind of interested to see that, too, because I think this roster needs to be kind of revamped a little bit on the offensive side. You just don't have the talent that you once did, particularly at the skill spot, especially at receiver. Um, I'm not convinced the quarterback's as good as I once thought he was. Uh, He's got a lot of growing to do, and there's nobody else quite ready to even push him, much less take over. So, I mean, I I think there's – some uh, cautious optimism, but 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 people want to see him actively go try to make some upgrades in the portal, and they're not convinced he's going to do what they think he needs to do. That'll be interesting. How can people keep up with the work that you do? AllClemsonTigers.com. You can find me on Twitter at JP underscore Priester. Thank you, sir. Appreciate yes, it. Yes, sir. Always a pleasure. Need to mention tomorrow, state championship game, Jason Priester will be on the call on the radio. Yeah. Rocking a South Lawrence hat today. Yeah. I went and bought this last night just for tomorrow. Okay. Good I, fi- I figure if I'm traveling with the visiting team, I can at least represent them. I can show bias this week, right? You can do that. The game is tomorrow, and it airs in the Florence area on uh, 96.3 ESPN Radio with Emerson Phillips and Jason Priester on the call for the state championship game. Okay. Go Bruins. We'll take a break. We will be back in a few moments. Are we ready?
We ready? It's that time. It's, the it's music Friday. Meme. Takes Mondays to make Fridays trivia. Brought to you by our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. The first correct answer to this question wins a six pack of Pepsi products and a couple of Takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts. We're talking about the similarities between college and professional football, right? Two Mannings became very, very important players in the NFL. Um, Peyton and Eli. Peyton and Eli's father is named Archie Manning. Where did Archie Manning play college football? Where did Archie Manning play college football? 843-661-0937. We're talking about, you know, the NFL and college football looking more and more like the NFL. Where did Archie Manning the father of Peyton and Eli, play his college games. Hi, you're on the air. What's your guess? Well, I don't have a guess. This is Beverly from oh. Florence, Florence. Yeah, we Florence. need to get back to um, – yeah, just... Put Beverly on hold there if you don't mind. And uh, I think she wants to call in and okay. support a Lions Club event. But let's, let's, let's get a winner, and then we'll get back to, to Beverly. Hi, you're on. What's your guess? Uh, Mississippi. Ole Miss. You're right. The University of Mississippi. Uh, Rebels. Uh, yeah. It used to be the Hannah Pimpico Rebels, but they had to change that name to the, yeah. to the Red Raiders. Who is this and where are you calling from? The Sharon from Pimpico. Okay, we're going to get you all the uh, – that's a good, really good Hannah Pimpico girl there, I would imagine. Uh, um, and I was a rebel during the Rebel days. Okay, yeah. back in the day. I hear you. I can relate to back in, back in the day. Uh, yeah, Archie Manning played at Ole Miss. Peyton, of course, played at Tennessee. And Eli played at Ole Miss. Um, and then Archie went to uh, the New Orleans Saints. Peyton went to Denver and then where? Um, Indianapolis. Or was it Indianapolis and then Denver? Yeah, yeah Indianapolis yeah, yeah. and then Denver. Colson. And uh, Eli paid, uh, played with the Jets. Um, so thank you for the uh, for the answer. And uh, I'm rambling here now. I'm struggling because I know i got two things going on here at one time. Thanks to Pepsi to Florence, yep. first of all, for supporting this uh, feeble, very feeble right now, tempted Radio Brigance. And um and thanks to uh the lady, what was her name again? So you didn't catch her name? Sharon. Yeah, Sharon from Pamplico. Um for correctly uh correctly identifying the university of which Archie Manning played football for. Um somebody texted me a second ago and asked could they call in and support a Lions Club event and I said call in and I should have said call in after we do the trivia. Yeah. Well now I'm saying over the air, call in after we do uh the trivia and we'll make sure we can promote uh, or either, I could read this. Uh, let's see here. Um, real radio, real live radio. You ready? There's a Lions Club toy run Sunday. That's all the details I have. If this person will call in, we'll get her to the front of the line um, and give a shout-out about the Lions Club toy run Sunday. Um, I just don't have any particulars or details. their annual events, and, uh, and folks have, uh, that have – listened and paid attention and supported the toy run in the past. It's coming up this Sunday. Okay. And I think so, um, do we have a caller? I think this may be. Okay. Yes, sir. Maybe. Okay. Is this What's Beverly? Our... Hey. Hey. Sorry about that. We're, we're clear now. What you got? Okay. So I just wanted to call in. I was trying to do it the last minute, so I wouldn't interrupt delegation. Um, so I just wanted to um, announce that we are having our 40th annual toy run this Sunday. Uh, registration starts at 12 o'clock at the uh, Florence Center, and bikes are going to be out at 2. 
Um, looking at the weather, it looks like we are going to be clear um, right after lunchtime. The rain's going to hold off. So I hope everybody will take that in consideration and come out and join us. It's a huge event. It's a centennial event for us because it is the 40th year annual toy run. And we collect lots of toys and bicycles, and we distribute them all throughout the PD. All the money stays in the PD. Um, <clears throat> so if you need toys for your kids, we have several different organizations you can reach out to to request toys. Um, <clears throat> so it's going to be a fun. It's going to be a fun time. We may get a little damp, but it's okay. Um, bikers aren't scared of rain. There you go. So I, just want to let y'all, you guys know, I hope you all can attend. I was out with Mudflap, Mudflap and Palmer yesterday over at Poolworks. Um, you can drop off toys there, give monetary donations there with them. Those guys are having a lot of fun out there. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be fun. So uh, don't let a little few raindrops lead you away. We want you all to come out and have a good time. There'll be chicken bog at the uh, fairgrounds once we're done with the ride, raffles, auctions. It's, it's just a good time. Good deal. Thank you, Beverly. Appreciate that. And the Lions Club working hard to try and yep. make sure kids are, um, are having Christmases that they will, will absolutely remember. Um, speaking of that, I do want to remind you one last time about the thing of uh, the thing. Um, the, the fundraiser that Rev and I are a part of, Community Broadcasters has partnered with Pepsi cola of florence we couldn't do this without our sponsors we've also got as part of this swap payment solutions anderson brothers bank walk up electric hubs farmland and trinity auto glass we're paying our respects to mr frank avance and we're having a um, a fundraiser to try and provide christmas for six anonymous families that have been selected by youth mentors of the pd and the boys and girls club of the pd um, you can make a donation how, Rev? Just go to live953.com. That's the website. Look for the Season of Giving uh, banner or slider, as we call it. Click on that. When you see it appear on the screen, it'll take you right to the donate and information site. Okay. As soon as I get out of here, I'm drafting NIL legislation <laughs> to ramrod through the House Please. of Representatives so my damn Gamecocks will be better at football. Enjoy your weekend.